This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to episode 55 of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. <laughs> Hello, everyone, wherever you are in the world. Uh, thank you for joining this uh, expanding classroom. I'm just really honored and humbled that we are able to have this space. And it, it's, uh, you know, it tells you something that people do care, you know, that, you know, people, oh, we only care about certain things. No, no, no. We, we care about, we care about our knowledge. We care about our community. We care about expanding and building and growing and I'm watching it happen in real time. So I'm absolutely. absolutely. And, and you also, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, Professor Hunter, happy spring. As of uh, five thirty-seven this morning, right, uh, we passed the equinox, and we, we should talk about that a little bit at the beginning. But also, hello everyone around the world, because for some of you all, it's not—it's the equinox everywhere. The sun is hitting the equator right on the belt, but the days are about to get shorter in the so-called southern hemisphere and getting longer up here in the northern hemisphere. So around the world, hello everybody, and let me just add—if uh, you haven't uh, gone over to sign up for narrative, please do. Uh, y'all like y'all like how um, our fearless leader pulled that little midweek thing on you. Don't worry, it's a lot more to come. <laughs> Very nice, as oh. kids would say, say less. But at yeah. any rate, <laughs> I, mean, you know, I, mean, I think you know transparency is everything. So we, yeah. we during the course of the week are filling out. There's a section called "You Should Know" of figures that everyone should know. So mm-hmm. Dr. Cars, given his time, I, I talk with Dr. Blair Kelly. I'm talking to a bunch of other educators and and historians about different figures that aren't hidden from y'all, but hidden from most of us. So we're fleshing those out, uh, you know, and we're going to be adding them to narrative as well. But we start, you know, as we always do, we start, start talking. I was like, um, uh, hold up, let me hit record because this is. Time. Inspiration. So, Inspiration. Uh, record. Inspiration. Yeah, I, I should name. I should name one though off break this morning though, just for about two minutes. And you know, just okay. as we stay here in the split screen, um, while I was searching for, um, my copy of Toussaint Louverture, which is C.L.R. James's 1936 play that he staged on Toussaint in uh, March 1936. That play was actually staged in London with Paul Robeson. Uh, and uh, but at any rate, I was looking for it. I couldn't, and 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 for some reason, I went in part a part of the apartment I normally don't go. I said maybe I left it over here, and I came across uh, a book that I hadn't put my hands on in quite some time, even years. It was um, it's a bibliography by a brother who is a is a he should be a hero of all of ours, a really an important figure named Monroe Nathan Work. Um, it's called, a, uh, this is actually a reprint, a bibliography of the Negro in Africa and America. That's works bibliography. And, you know, I said, man, my man Monroe work. And here's how it is. You know, language talks to you. And when you see something, don't don't ignore the little signs. Right. I mean, we, we are all going to feel better now because the sun's coming out. I mean, nature. But 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 there's a larger concept of nature at play. And we're going to talk about that when we mention Vodun in a minute. You know, Vodun is nothing to be scared of. It, it just simply means the forces, the spirits, the laws, the the, the, the things that animate us. And for African people, when we created that third category uh, in our Africana studies, conceptual category framework, ways of knowing. We have to honor the ways of knowing we have developed in the world. So when I see a book that I hadn't seen in a long time and I'm looking for something else, I just pause. Something, so I opened the book, reopened the book, and I got this book many years, a whole story behind that. So story. But anyway, 
the preface to the book, which at the time was the largest bibliography ever published on people of African descent. Monroe Work was a very important guy, was born in North Carolina. He's one of 11 children. Uh, he didn't go to high school until he was in his early 20s. He, he, he farmed in Kansas. Uh, he was a pastor for a hot minute, the AME Church. He went to University of Chicago and probably is the first person, yeah, not probably, the first black person to get uh, a master's degree, get a degree in the department of what was in sociology. You know, University of Chicago is known for sociology, but he was the first to get that degree. Uh, he then went and taught at Savannah State College. Uh, well, Savannah, Georgia State Industrial College for Negroes, founded by Richard Robert Wright. Somebody asked us about Richard Wright, too. We might do Richard Wright as well. The black boy of Atlanta, as they talk about. But at any rate, uh, he then answered the call. Booker Washington said, hey, man, come down here to Tuskegee because we need the top scholar we can find to keep records on the race. He became the director of research and records at Tuskegee, and he stayed there for decades until he finally retired and turned the reins over to a sister who, uh, uh, Guzman, who actually came after him. But at any rate, in fact, for years, he would publish something called a Negro yearbook. I'm going to show you all something y'all may not get a chance to see much of. This is the year Negro yearbook from 1931, 1932. This is a compilation of stuff about black people. And he was known as the man who kept the records on lynchings. And Ms. Guzman tells the story. She was interviewed before she made transition. She lived into the 1990s. And she talks about how when she went down there, they 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 they, tra they, tra they tracked all the newspapers. They followed up. They double checked. They triple checked. And he was the one. They were the ones who did the statistics. So when we think of Tuskegee, we think, oh, Washington versus Du Bois. No, 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 no. Monroe Work was the man. He and his little staff. And the first two people he hired were women. These are black women. And she was like, I think she was 24 when she took that job. Anyway, because she knew his wife from Savannah. Anyway, this is the Negro yearbook from 1947. This is one that she edited because she edited them after he retired. Anyway, he got a little grant from the Carnegie Corporation. He said, we need to put together a bibliography because his thing was really bibliography. Where are the sources on our people? This brother consulted all over the world, Europe. Africa. He got with the book hunters like his friend Arturo Schomburg, the, the great Afro-Puerto Rican scholar in New York. Uh, J.A. Rogers from Jamaica who was in New York. Anyway, he wrote the preface to this March 19th, 1928. When I, when I picked this book up yesterday, I was like, yeah, we should at least, you should know Monroe Nathan work. Why? Because he wanted me to tell y'all that. The first time I went to Tuskegee as a man, my mother is born about maybe not even a half hour from Tuskegee. First time I went to Tuskegee as a grown up was 1997. We had the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations. Our conference was at Tuskegee. We try to go to HBCUs. We go to the universities. And I gave a talk there. I, you know, give a talk every year. But this year, uh, I gave a talk on Monroe Nathan work, the importance of intellectual work on the 100th anniversary of the founding of something called the American Negro Academy. We'll talk more about that another day. We had may have to do a whole thing on the American Negro Academy. It was the 100th anniversary of that. And I opened with a, with a quote from Alexander Crummel, who we should probably talk about too. That was one of you know, Du Bois's kind of intellectual fathers. He writes about him in Souls of Black Folk, if y'all read Souls of Black Folk. Anyway, I won't get into that. But before, when we first got to town, you know, the first thing I did was when we got on campus, I kind of quietly walked over to the cemetery because Monroe Work and his wife are buried at Tuskegee. As is Eunice Rivers, by the way. Y'all know about the Tuskegee experiment. She was the sister who was kind of 
the, the the sister who dealt with those brothers who they who they did not treat for syphilis. So people look at her as kind of a sinister figure, but it's complicated because she was trying to, you know, if y'all saw the uh, the, the fictional uh, characterization with Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, I think um, what's our sister Angela Bassett played her in the HBO movie uh, Miss Evers Boys. But at any rate, she's buried there. And of course, Washington is buried at the beginning of the cemetery under a big boulder. George Washington Carver is buried there. And I stood right there at the grave of Ms. and, and Ms. Work and said, you know, Ma'akaru, uh, that's an ancient Egyptian term that means the voice is true. While you were here, you spoke true of voice. And I just wanted to mention him. In fact, if y'all want to read more about him, there isn't a, a, there aren't a lot of, uh, uh, of single sources. He wrote a number of things. This is Linda McMurray's book, Recorder of the Black Experience, a, a biography of Monroe Nathan Work. I kept for years in Philly, uh, a framed photograph of Monroe Nathan work among those who I keep around where I'm reading and writing as a Monroe work was the man, but we'll, we, we okay, maybe we'll do a whole thing on him for narrative. And then y'all can talk about it without even knowing, you know, there's a bibliography and narrative. We are pasting together the tapestry of our history. You know, we are bringing people in throughout the diaspora because we didn't just start here 400 years ago with 20 some odd Negroes. There's a vast, vast amount of people whose names we do not know, like Monroe Work. First time I wrote it down. First time I ever heard of him today. So, you know, I just want to thank you again. And I was watching before I came in the Justice League um, on HBO Max. You know, that's kind of my routine. did Did you finish it? No, because it's four hours. Okay, I would say no spoiler alert. I'm just saying, okay. Don't tell me anything. Right. I won't, I won't, but just just know it's a completely different movie than the other one. So, yeah, it's not a crime. So, I was telling Kareem, and he was like, yeah, it's four hours. I was like, yeah, but we binge watch, you know, eight episodes of a thing during the weekend. I was like, this is streamed now. It's a different mentality. Everything's different. The rhythm is different. The vibration is different. And we need to start to, to be nimble enough to, like, digest these things in the way in which all of us individually uh, have the capacity to. So there's a scene though, I'm not giving away too much, but Diana's going into this tomb and on the wall is the history 5,000 years before of of what's to come. And I was thinking about that in this moment that literally Dr. Carr, you are helping us, you know, they were in glyphs, you know, on the wall. And you were talking last week about the glyphs and we're we're gonna definitely have glyph lessons in, in narrative. I was like, wow, you know, our history has been lost, scattered uh, on purpose, buried, you know, remade, remixed, lied about. And this this space that we're in allows us to put those glyphs together indelibly. That's right. Everybody here is responsible for holding the truth and the memory so that this will never happen to us again. So I just exactly right. No, no. Thank you. I mean, it's so funny you say that. uh, Professor Hunter, because as narrative is building out this bibliography in the great tradition of Monroe work. And again, I want to mention, of course, his his partner, his his apprentice who took over after he retired, Jesse Pankhurst Guzman. Uh, Miss Guzman, uh, she said, you know, when he made transition, uh, he passed in 1945. He was working on a much bigger bibliography, the one that the one you see there. Uh, this bibliography is maybe not even maybe it's 674 pages without the index. There are over 17,000 entries. It was the it was the, the, the thing at the time. And there's a whole lot more I can say about Nathan work, but I won't. Um, Ms. Guzman said he was like, now we're going to do the big one. He had mapped out a 100,000 text mm-hmm. uh, project 
when he made transition in 1945. I want y'all pause here and think about that because, you know, as you say, everything has changed. And all we're trying to do here is create some space for us to, I'm going to use a term that we use now, crowdsource our knowledge. And what do I mean by that? We all know something. And what that removes is the illusion that thinking work, number one, the thinking work is not important because we see it. We see it in social media responses. We see it as folks are coming in, joining us. Also, number two, it removes the we're removing the illusion that we haven't been doing this work all along. So that, that's why often when, you know, new books come out and I'll get the book and I'll read it and I'm thinking or I'll hear somebody talking and I'm like, and in my mind, I'm footnoting or comparing what they're saying with something somebody said 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And anytime I'm always suspicious when somebody say, well, this is the first, I'm like, this not even close. This man right here, they, <laughs> do you understand? <laughs> 1928, they had a 17,000 and they left out more than they kept in. He had to edit it down to 17,000. And then he was going to do 100,000. And these, this is stuff that already existed. So I'm saying it's very rare that we're going to encounter a subject or a topic involving our people that somebody hasn't thought about before, hasn't discussed before, hasn't used for inspiration or instruction before. And so in that scene, when Diana goes into the temple and you know she sees spelled out before her what is to come based on what has happened, it's a reinforcement of two things. It's a reinforcement of the importance of memory because if you don't remember, you won't know how to combat what's coming. It's very important. We're going to talk about that when we talk about Haiti in a second. The other thing is, it's a reminder that all human beings, all members of the human so, human family have in their clusters, in our clusters of families, in our societies, ways of knowing. And we don't displace Diana. We don't displace the Amazons. We don't displace the myth-making, the ways of knowing that come out of there. Even as watching her go in that temple and think, yeah, that's a kind of in, uh, built with inferior materials riff on the many temples that I've stood in in Kemet, in ancient Egypt, alongside my brother, Dr. Mario Beatty, the finest teacher of the Egyptian language who's drawing breath, who's with us. So y'all sign up with narrative. Y'all want to learn hieroglyphs. You learn it from a black man who is the absolute best, the uh, the best in his generation, because he was taught by the best in the previous generation, the great Teofalo Benga, who still draws breath. But those are the two things that um, we must know so that we can know what to do now in terms of problem solving. So we won't make the same mistakes and we can improve on the things. And everybody does it. That Everybody means us too. Everybody means us too. Please. <laughs> everybody means us too. Anyway, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's talk um, a little bit as an entry point, uh, an ancestor. I love when you say who still draws breath and ancestor. Ooh, ooh. These, are, these are words that have been in the lexicon, but I personally have never used it until I met you. Oh, I, I never referred to people as ancestors and people who draw breath. So I want that's to a blessing. That. That's a shout out to all my teachers and all the people who taught them all the way back to the beginning. Yes. Uh, so this week, uh, Yafi Koto made transition. Another yeah. phrase that I never used until I met you. Made, and, you know, he's an actor and, you know, entertainer or what have you. But I thought it was interesting because he was depicted in a Bond movie as a yes. voodoo priest or something or some yes. sort of villain. <laughs> So let's talk about that as we springboard into the Haitian Revolution and why it's 
important today that we yeah, know. In fact, I'm going to I'm not going to resist the urge today because there are there are a handful of books. Howard Brotz did one long time ago, the Negro Jews, the Black Jews of Harlem. Uh, of course, my man, Yosef Benyakin and the great Yosef Benyakin, I had the honor of co-writing along with my man, Reggie Mabry and Leonard Jeffries and James Small and Mario Beatty and a few others. We wrote his obituary for the Amsterdam News at, at just before the funeral at Abyssinian Baptist Church, the great Yosef uh, uh, Alfredo Antonio Benyakin and Dr. Ben, as he was known, he wrote a book many years ago and I, and I will resist the urge to go get it because it's too far from my reach now called We the Black Jews. Uh, but I'm going to get this book. And I'm going to show it to y'all because we talk about the notion of black folk. And y'all remember, I was touching base with him this week, my brother, Nick Cannon. You know, all the stuff that went down in the past year when he had Professor Griff on, on Cannon's class. And he was talking, you know, they said, oh, this is anti-Semitic. And so, you know, Nick, who I've never seen have a crossword for or to anybody close I've ever seen Nick to being mad is when he's beefing with the brother in a uh, drum line when they come in to do the cadences That's, and even then you're looking at him like you you're not good at acting angry at people so it's at any rate so I know I wasn't in his heart or in his mind but Yafet Kato was a Jew not observing Jew in the same thing but his father's from Cameroon his mother's from the Caribbean and uh New Yorker you know, born and raised. But I, but I mentioned that because uh, the the question of whether black people were Jews, you know, the better Israel, the folks in Southern Africa, you got folk in West Africa who say, this is an in interesting little book by Tudor Parfit called Black Jews in Africa and the Americas that talks about some of that. Uh, it isn't the only book, but I mention it because it's important to talk about. I don't know if y'all remember when Yafet Kato got that. We all remember him in Homicide, Life on the Streets. And uh, in Baltimore and somebody said something it was a scene and I don't know how religion came up and he said well you know I'm Jewish and you know I'm sure there are people who thought oh wow that was interesting just got tossed in and I guess, well, he's a black Jew yeah and they're black Jews going back millennia so let's be very clear so at any rate <laughs> Yafa is an interesting guy interesting guy I mean we, we, we you know he comes out of the theater so that sent me into my books you know um i said let me see can i find a picture of yafet kato and i look over here this paul carter harrison cicely tyson wrote the introduction shadows of the, in the shadow of the great white way and i'm looking at him and i'm saying this guy came out he's a he's a he's a generation behind miss tyson and them which means a generation behind cats like william marshall you know some of y'all know the name william marshall probably everybody most of you know uh blackula or scream, Blackula scream, where uh, Pam Greer ironically plays the Vodun priestess. You know, I mean, a vampire is, yeah, man, vampire is scary as hell. So who, how you gonna be the vampire? You better go get a mambo, a sister who is a Vodun priestess. So anyway, y'all remember scream, Blackula scream. Well, well, William Marshall came out the theater. So Yafet Kato said, I believe, was it Marlon Brando? It was somebody he went to see in New York, a live production. And he said, I walked out. It was like I got punched in my chest and all the breath would left my body. After I left that production, I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. And he was a hell of an actor from beginning to end. We know him, of course, when he comes into what they usually call the black exploitation period across 110th Street. You know, I mean, we know he was in that. Uh, some people may remember he played Idi Amin in a made for television movie called mm -hmm. Rated in Tebby. I'm saying 
y'all y'all done made two movies about Idi Amin because remember uh, Forrest Whitaker played him in the last King of Scotland. Won an Oscar. He won an Oscar. Of course, of course they're gonna get a statue to the most pathological. Uh, yeah, they're not they're gonna they're not gonna give him a best supporting actor for playing James Farmer Senior in The Great Debaters. They're not gonna give him a, a, a statuette for playing in that small film which was explosive. As far as I'm concerned, one of the best performances he ever gave, which was a uh, Ghost Dog. Yeah, I seen Ghost Dog with the soundtrack by the Woo. Yeah, y'all should check that out with Forrest Whitaker. But uh, or they won't give him the statue for uh, his remarkable turn as Charlie Parker, even though he had the white nationalist uh, director, Clint Eastwood, directing him in Bird. But they're going to give him the statue for playing Idi Amin with some bad makeup. And so Yafet Kato played him on the made-for-TV movie Rated in Tebby. But we want to use, as the point of entry, as Professor Hunter said, as you just said, we want to use today Yafet Kato in a 1973 film. Sean Connery, who we talked about, if y'all are, are on the uh, the narrative side, you know we, that's all been annotated now. We talked about Sean Connery making transition a little while ago, and before that, you know Sean Connery. Some I don't get typecast as James Bond, this agent of uh, British imperialism. We'll see the British again in a minute in the Haiti business, but you know this is post World War II. This is demonizing uh, communism, socialism, demonizing Russia. So you remember, of course, uh, from Russia with love, you know, Dr. No, you got these these cartoon villains in Bond. But then Sean Connery walks away. And uh, the Scotsman walks away. And who occupies the throne of James Bond, agent of empire? I know y'all love James Bond. I know you love him. And remember, Karen, when I showed you all, all the uh, Ian Fleming novels that that was based on, and there's a whole racist background of James Bond. You know, I ain't mad. I don't watch all them James Bond movies a million times. But this one here in 1973 is the debut of the new Bond. Now, this guy had played another agent of empire in a television series called The Saint. Uh, this is, of course, Roger Moore, who also made transition not too long ago. This is Roger Moore's first turn as James Bond. So how's he going to do? Well, live and let die. Gotta love it. Some of y'all know that, that movie, right? So there are, if you remember in about a five minute sequence, there are, they open up with three scenes after the obligatory little white dots come across the screen and Bond is walking. And he turns around, boom, and the blood comes down. The opening scene is at the United Nations. And you see the British uh, representative with the little thing in his ear, translator, he's there, everybody trying to fall asleep, whatever. And then you see these hands in the control booth where the translators are, turn a switch, and this like high-pitched whine goes through the earphone of the British ambassador, and he and he keels over. Clearly, he's dead. Then the scene cuts to Yafet Kato. Yafet Kato just kind of looks over, then keeps looking back. So the implication is he either ordered the hit, or he knew what was happening, or he's like, okay, good, satisfied. That's Yafet Kato's first appearance, and he's black. Black man to hit the second of the three scenes, then it shifts to New Orleans. They're having a funeral, and all you New Orleans folk know how that works, right? You got the casket, the old man is in front with the sash, and they're playing the little band that surrounded the casket, and they're playing, I think it's just a closer walk with thee. <laughs> they playing the song. Mm -hmm. White man, little derby on. Lady found out he he's working with them too. The international, uh, 
imperialist despise. He leaning up against the post watching the funeral, slow funeral. So this black man, little black man walks up next to him and he says, uh, oh, whose funeral is it? Then you see they close up on his side, on the on the, the, the two standing side by side. You see the black man pull a knife out of his pocket, switchblade, and the old, and little black man says, yours. <laughs> then the white man collapses. They march the casket over to where he is, set it down, pick it back up. The body is gone. When they get false bottom, he's in the casket. They come back in the street. They keep marching. Somebody hits the horn behind them, and the second line kicks in. They dance because you know that's what you do with a with a funeral like that. The second line being the people who are following the casket, following the musicians who are dancing. Yeah, and then the third, the third of the three scenes. Bottom it says, San Monique, an island in the Caribbean. All these Africans dancing in what I suppose is now a gesture toward voodoo, what they would call voodoo or vodun, right? They dancing, they dancing. Oh, you know how these people, you know, yeah, drums going, you know, dozens of black people, everybody colorful dress and everybody circling, circling, circling. Then the one guy comes out with the animal skin on the top. He's got the, the big snake. Now, if you know anything about Vodun's from the Dambala, right? So, I mean, got the big snake, the big green snake. And he's getting closer. He's getting closer. And what is revealed is at the center of these circles, these concentric circles dancing, is another white man. Clearly another spy. He's tied up. He gets closer. He gets closer. He gets closer. To, then it's good. The drum's getting louder and louder. Then you see the sisters. Ah! Then... He puts the snake on the man's neck, bites him. And then you hear Paul McCartney. As the lights fade down. When you were young and your heart was an open book. Paul McCartney now, the Beatles are gone. He's with Linda McCartney and Wings. You used to say, live and let live. You know you did, you know you did, you know you did. But in this ever-changing world in which we live in, makes you give in and cry. Hit that blue note. Do-do-do. Say, live and let die. Boom. They are the flaming skulls. What does it matter to you? When you got a job to do, you got to do it well. You gotta give the other fella hell. Tiffany's do 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 do. Ba 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 ba. Oh, here come now. The whole movie revolves around Yafet Kato. After you didn't set up blackness as the evil empire of everything, they are aligned with organized crime. They align with voodoo. They gonna kill you in the streets of New Orleans. They gonna send a a, a sound wave through to kill you at the UN. And Yafet Kato, the villain of the debut of Roger Moore as James Bond in Live and Let Die, one of the most racist of a generally racist trope called the Bond films. And I'm talking about these new ones now. Okay, we, you know, we Daniel Craig and them, and they got the sisters involved, and it's very nice. But I'm talking about them Bond films that set the template for post-World War II fighting against the communists, fighting against the uh, insurrectionists that may have rebellions in the Caribbean, may have rebellions even on the streets of America. In other words, these black and brown people, you got Yafet Kato playing uh, a thug figure out of the Caribbean, political leader, and then in, in, in America, in New York, he's Mr. Big, the drug lord, playing a dual identity as if them things is synonymous. And that's how Yafet Kato enters the lexicon and 
you know, in the obituaries, they'll talk about life. Um, uh, uh, they'll talk about homicide life on the street. They might mention Raiden and Tebby, but live and let die is when you see. And of course, finally, who is the high priestess of these African spiritual traditions in the film? Uh, Pam Greer. Wait, no, that was screen back of your screen. Yeah, was. Oh, it was Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Hmm. Yeah. Jane Seymour, the white girl. Remember, she had the tarot cards. Is she reading the tarot cards? In fact, I want to say, help me, Professor Hunter, because I haven't watched Live and Let Die in quite some time. I want to say James Bond, when he first went down to the island, started tracking these cats, he ended up, uh, a, a young sister who was a young spy ended up trying to uh, beat him up because she didn't know who he was. And I think they ended up in bed, probably. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's very nice. It's like yeah. uh, Bill oh, yeah. Shatter. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I'm glad William Shatner never put his hands on Nichelle Nichols, who I guess is still still walks the earth. So uh, but uh yeah, the black bond girl showed up in that film as well. But uh but Yafet Kato, and, and the reason we raised that is of course, as you say, Kato made transition uh, a few days ago. So we wish his you know, as his soul rises like Ra. Uh but that that characterization of voodoo or Vodun. And its association with a commingling of political uh, marginality, uh, a bridge that there's no bridge to it. These are these irrational, emotional blacks. And then the glosset with criminality. But even in that moment, to still make the master of it a white woman, <laughs> yeah. all the pathologies of how we think about ourselves. In terms of our governance structure and more importantly for this how other people portray us in the social structure are right there um but 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 we have to understand that there is no island like there's no island called san monique but that's close enough to san dominique or uh the island that we now know as haiti and the uh, Dominican Republic because the idea is that that's enough of a gloss and a stand in for Haiti in 1973 which is still under the terroristic grip of the Duvalier family mm. uh, uh, Francois Papa Doc Duvalier and Jean-Claude Baby Doc Duvalier uh, and we'll talk a little about, about the Duvaliers on the way to this but the idea is that uh, the Caribbean what my man, uh, Julius Scott, who I hope I have his book. If I do, I will show it. To you. Yeah, here we go. 1986, this brother wrote a dissertation called uh, The Common Wind. Julius Scott is an interesting character, uh, interesting figure, not character. He's not, you know, he's not an actor. He's a, he's a, uh, maybe emeritus now at the University of Michigan. But his dissertation wasn't published as a book until 2018 this book came out a couple of years ago um when i was in graduate school you know the people who were in the know and you know these are little these are very small so academic circles are tiny but this 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 piece of work was legendary and so i'll never forget because back in them days i'm talking now about the late 80s early 90s you had to send off to michigan to what they call UMI, you know, was Universal Microforms Incorporated, something like that. And you had to pay 
big money, you know, $40, $30, $50, whatever it was, to get a dissertation. You send your money. They would then go into their microfilm and make a copy of whatever dissertation you order and then mail it to you. And, and you know, when I was, I mean, now you still have to do this, what I'm about to say next. If you have a PhD in the United States, when you finish your dissertation, it's been approved. You made the revisions. You turned it in. You, I mean, you then send a copy to, used to be two copies, I think, to UMI. Why? Because then they would turn it into microfilm. Now it's all digital. But I'll never forget when I got in the mail my copy of Julia Scott's 1986 dissertation, University of North Carolina, The Common Win. Scott's thesis is, he calls it, in fact, at the beginning, and y'all should get this book if you get a chance. He's got, uh, he calls it the ungovernable Caribbean. In fact, the common wind is taken from a poem that William Wordsworth wrote in, eight, in 1802 as tribute to Toussaint L'Ouverture. He said, there's not a breathing of the common wind that will forget thee. Thou hast great allies. Thy friends are exultations, agonies, and love, and man's unconquerable mind. Meaning what? We all breathe the same air. And under that common wind, as people are talking about George Washington, as people are talking about Napoleon, under that common wind, anybody who breathes that common wind and believes in freedom will not forget you, Toussaint Louverture. Because Toussaint Louverture, you, sir, represent the best in the human spirit. And so, as is often the case, people say it is the Wordsworth poem that immortalized this. One of the things that I'm like, boy, y'all just still can't get credit. Like, you know, black people got poets too. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Scott uses this to talk about the common wind, Afro-American currents, and the age of the Haitian Revolution. And shout out to Julius Scott, who comes from an interesting family. That's a whole nother conversation. He's actually Julius Scott Jr., so interesting conversation. But um, that book talks about how we've never submitted to enslavement anywhere. And in the Caribbean, Jim Negroes was ungovernable. <laughs> in other words, I mean, you had people hopping from island to island. You had people fighting alongside the so-called buccaneers. All y'all watch that Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. That stuff is based on something that actually happened. Because the first people, Europeans that came into the Hispaniola, what is called Hispaniola, that island that has Haiti for the, uh, the, the eastern, I'm sorry, the western third and the Dominican Republic on the eastern two-thirds. At the north part, you had white boys, the English in them, who was raiding ships, going back and forth, all that Johnny Depp type business. They they had an outpost out there in the north. And you had Africans who were doing this as well. But Scott was like, them white boys was outnumbered. They were hanging on by the skin of their teeth in the Caribbean. And you had black women who were technically enslaved, who were selling their stuff down in the ports in Jamaica and Trinidad and Port-au-Prince, Haiti. You had cats who had escaped enslavement other places, and they still trying to figure out, how you going to get this iron collar off me? It don't matter. You free now. And he said, you will see the English saying, how in the hell? Y'all got to be under control. I just seen all these black. And then a dude walked out with a full iron collar and spikes. And then he, uh, is he enslaved or not? No, that's ungovernable, bro. Just pretend like you didn't see that. I mean, <laughs> it's basically why some police won't go in some neighborhoods. In other words, yeah, we got, now y'all ain't come up here. It's after nine o'clock. It's nighttime. So y'all just going to check in that you roll the street. But yeah, 120, 145th and convent, that's ungovernable. In other words, the, the notion is that we act like we are oppressed all the time. But what Scott reveals is even under oppression, we create space to resist and people know better than to come in here and take us at our strength when we got too many people. Anyway, 
So, so how do we get here? You know, Haiti's in the news uh, now again, yet again, another, you know, uprising yes. around, you know, politics and elections. We've seen it time and time again, Aristide and the, the Duvaliers. And yes. you know, how did a nation that threw up the yoke of slavery oh. became ungovernable? Yes. Set the world on fire, literally made yeah. every white person in the world scared. Yes. End up constantly in these spaces where they can't seem to get their footing. Well, let's uh let's 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 break it down very simply. Let's break it down very simply. Um, and let me do it by way of a point of entry. Every year, um, for many years. Uh, well, now we're in our 22nd years. I've, talk, I've talked about Philadelphia Freedom Schools before. Um, we would pick a book and we would have students read it. Now, in 2008, well, actually in 2007, I would usually go around. I'd be in the bookstores all the time. And it was my honor and responsibility to suggest the book. And then we would talk about strengths. And, and we I mean, we did so much. And, and in fact, I, I want us to do maybe on the narrative side, we do a whole work in history. My sister Kelly Sparrow has written the history for the Freedom Schools. And I've talked about it before. But. In 2007, this book came out by our brother, my friend Randall Robinson. This is actually a paperback copy. This isn't the original copy because you see he actually won the Essence Literary Award in 2008. Uh, Randall Robinson, An Unbroken Agony, Haiti from Revolution to the Kidnapping of a President. He's friends with Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, who is still alive, who returned to Haiti uh, several years ago. They actually had an assassination attempt on him in 2017. Uh, just the, you know, he kind of stays out of the light. 2011, I think he went back to Haiti. Finally, after being in South Africa, they flew him to the Central African Republic. He, he talks about that. Uh, in fact, Randall Robinson came to us at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. We had about 250 high school students and college students, mostly high school students, reading this book every summer. Uh, we would do that. And, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Robinson came and spoke with us about it. I mean, uh, he, he was a long time. He's a long time supporter of Philadelphia Freedom School. But at any rate, um, I said, you know what? This is an opportunity for us because we live in Philadelphia. And our communities, our non-white communities come from a lot of different places. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. You know, there's a healthy Dominican population in Philadelphia alongside Puerto Rican population and other Spanish-speaking Caribbean. We've got folk from the English-speaking Caribbean, of course, Jamaica, of course, Trinidad, Tobago, so many other places, uh, Barbados, so forth and so on. If not uh, coming directly, second for, you know, second or third generation. In fact, let me pause here and say, you know, we saw this legislation that was passed uh, well, through the House. We know it's probably going to die in the Senate. I'm going to tie the American political structure to the Haitian political structure in a second as well, because what we see in America is a preview of uh, what, uh, well, Haiti in the United States. In fact, America is the anti-Haiti, but not for the reasons people might think I'm going to say that. But at any rate, um, the the uh, the immigrants in the United States, you see the immigration legislation that the, the Senate will kill until the filibuster is killed, robbing this, these white nationalists of their power to stop everything in the country. Because when people hear me say that all the time, you know, the United States is disintegrating. It is disintegrating. And if you walk with me a little well, when I compare it to Haiti, you're going to see why I said that. I don't mean that we're going to die. I don't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't mean that there's not going to be some pain in between. But I do mean that this current system, like the one in Haiti, is unsustainable. But it's unsustainable in some ways for the exact opposite reason that it's unsustainable in Haiti. We'll get to that. So. 
but the, in the legislation, they're talking about the Dreamers and you know DACA. You're talking about those with trade prote temporary protected status. You know, coming from countries. Please understand that over the last two months, the Trump administration, Trump, no, the Biden administration has been in place while over a thousand Haitians, including children who weren't raised in Haiti. Over a thousand Haitians have been sent to Haiti. Over a dozen flights under the federal authority have been sent to Haiti, deported, even though Biden and Harris campaign and said they was going to put a stop to what Trump and them was doing. But on this issue, on foreign policy, Democrats and Republicans are indistinguishable enough for you not to really make a pick between them. It's the devil you do and the devil you do, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And over a thousand Haitians have been forcibly ejected from this country back to Haiti. Some of them don't know nothing about the country of their birth. And I'm saying that, say, why should we care? One out of every 10 African who draws breath in the United States of America, roughly speaking, came from another place. The Caribbean, about half the folk who come here of African descent, who migrate here are from the Caribbean, uh, under half, a little under half are from the continent of Africa. So, but one out of every 10, one out of every 10 African who draws breath in this country right now came here from somewhere else. Another 10%, meaning 20% of the Africans who are here now, and I'm including me, Professor Hunter, you, everybody black, another 10% are second generation, meaning one or both parent came from somewhere else. So Yefet Kato, for example, he's in that other 10%. His daddy from Cameroon, his mother from the Caribbean. He was born in New York, uh, born, raised in the Bronx. Okay, so you're an American citizen. You're American. Yeah, but my parents are... So that means 20%. One out of every five African in this country either came from somewhere else or one of their mama, their dad, or mama or daddy did. Why should we care? We should care because these are people. You understand. And when it comes to Haiti, we should care for very specific reasons in addition to that. But so I said, you know what? Let's bring our people together in Philly, these young people over something we never get to talk about. Let's talk about Africans somewhere else in the world, somewhere close, but also not here, who have that's our point of entry to talk about immigration policy. That's our uh, point of entry to talk about American foreign policy and neoliberalism. And when I tell you we had a time that summer, in fact, you know, anyway, I, I, I just got to, we, we got to do a whole thing on Freedom School because every session, we, uh, the young people with these teenagers, 14 to 18 years old, uh, mostly 15, 16 year olds, really, would every day they would be at a different school in Philadelphia. At our peak, we had like 22 sites and they would be teaching elementary school students in clusters of 100, 10, 10 students in a class, a college student, college age student, and two high school students in each class teaching elementary school students. And we wrote the curriculum. I mean, shout out to all my co-conspirators. Co co I love that, that crew, brilliant educators. And then every Wednesday, all of the high school students would be pulled out from around the city and we would meet up at one of the high schools. We met at Paul Robeson High School. Uh, I love Paul Robeson High School. My man, uh, uh, anyway, it's a whole nother time. Uh, University City High School, Ben Franklin High School. We would meet and we would spend that day focused on the text. And so that summer, you know, but every time I would open up, you know, they would they would meet, they would break out, they would discuss the text with the, with the, with their faculty. Their faculty were high school teachers. 
And then we would all come together in the afternoon and we would have a, a meeting of the whole where we would just do close readings of the text and get down into it. This is intellectual work. And people say, well, you know, how does it connect to? I, no, 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 no. This is intellectual work. Where else are they going to do that? They're going to do intellectual work in this. This is freedom school. You think school? We're going we're gonna to do that. Everything ain't got to be about acquiring a skill. You know what the skill is? Thinking, reading, writing, doing text. So every uh, day we would do, you know, I would open with the newspapers, you know, New York Times. Here's what's in the Washington Post. Here's what's in the black newspapers, the Inquirer. And then we get into the text. Anyway, so that summer we got a deeper understanding because what came out, what emerged in the conversation with the young people, some of whom were either from Haiti or who had who have people are from Haiti, some of whom were Dominican, some of whom were Puerto Rican, many of whom were Africans who had, people had come through enslavement in this country, some of whom were Koreans, some of whom were Chinese. We had sites in South Philly where I mean I mean we we had you know a handful of whom were white. We had conversations, which means Irish and Italian and Philly or other people. I mean we had conversations about the relationship between ethnicity and culture, migration, uh, the how how states contrast with other states. And in Philadelphia, it's particularly important because Philadelphia uh, has a connection to Haiti that goes back to before there was the United States of America in terms of being a city where it was a it was close to a port city. Uh, you see Stephen Gerard, Gerard College in North Philly. It was a whole story behind, you know, there's, there was the legend that Toussaint Louverture, when they kidnapped him and took him to France where he died, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, um, uh, Stephen Gerard, this rich white dude, uh, merchant, uh, had some money that the Haitians had for that, that he was given for safekeeping and he stole the money. I mean, it's all Philadelphia stories anyway. And some of that we talked about actually with Octavius Cato, if y'all go back and look at that. But that summer gave us an opportunity to sit with the story of Haiti. The second independent uh, independent polity, we'll say republic or whatever. I mean, the second independent polity in the Western hemisphere after settler colonialism, the first being the United States of America, the first one to be uh, controlled by black people and really the reason is still being punished by the Western powers and often with our consent, which is why we have to know foreign policy because we ain't, we ain't turning up enough. Uh, the, the only example of a country in the so-called modern world, the contemporary world, the post-settler colonial world, the settler colonial world, I'll say post because it's still going on. The only country in the Western hemisphere to be, and arguably the only country in the world where Africans from so many different places have tried for two plus centuries to mix themselves into a kind of pan-African uh, black country. It isn't Africa, even though there are many different national groups and language groups within those lines that the settler colonialists drew. It isn't Brazil. It isn't the United States where black people in, in Brazil may be the majority, but there's still a different. No, what happened in Haiti is, is unique because Haiti's identity is really based around the rural. In fact, um, in fact, I'm going to read from this now as a way of framing it, but I want to mention this one first. 
whoo, some powerful books. There, there are a group of books. I got probably about 30 of them right here. And that's not even a fraction of the ones that are written in English that I couldn't put my hands on because they're somewhere in storage. And But most of the stuff is not in English because, you know, obviously Haiti is Creole and French and Haitian Creole is more African than many of the other Creoles, uh, Patois of the other places in the Caribbean because of this African ethos. And that's one of the things that is brought up by this uh, Jean Fouchard. Jean Fouchard, uh, he wrote a book called The Haitian Maroons, Liberty or Death. Uh, he won uh, the Grand Prix de Terre Caribe. Uh, is, he wrote it in French. The preface is by the guy we're going to quote, Cyril Lionel Robert James, CLR James. This is an interesting guy, though. Uh, this is his picture, Jean Fouchard. And you, there's colorism, deep colorism, very important. We'll, we'll talk, we're going to talk about that in a second. But what Fouchard argues is that it was the rural Haitians that really fired this. In fact, let me read from C.L.R. James's preface. He says, the Haitian Maroons, you know, Maroon means runaway. Cimarrones from the Spanish, really not even a Spanish word as much as a Spanish loan word that they assigned to those who, when they came over here, escaped them. And they have been escaping. The Haitians have been escaping for a long time. The Haitian Maroons take an, uh, takes an automatic and assured place among the historical masterpieces of the age. This is what James is saying about Bouchard's book. Historical masterpiece in one of the precious uh, intellectual spheres and specialties of Western civilization? James says, yes. What gaps are filled? He says, Mr. Fouchard established that the Haitian nation, the result of the only successful slave revolt in history, was formed, organized, and maintained by the Maroons. The slaves who had run away from the slave society organized by the metropolitan forces and made a place for themselves in the inaccessible hills. Hitherto, they had been considered merely as accessories, more or less important to the national movement against slavery and for independence. But the author establishes it that not only were they indispensable, they were at the center of the revolt. So we think of Toussaint Louverture, which we'll talk about in a second. We think of um, uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, his second in command, and then Henri Christophe, who rose to second of command of uh, Dessalines. These are kind of like the, the triumphant figures. They all came out of enslavement, although in Toussaint's case, he very uh, his 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 parents were emancipated. He became free, and he was educated by the person who had them captive, who had freed them. So he has a different status, and he was a grown ass man by the time he came into this. But we, we're gonna come back to that in a second. But let me start. Let me pause there. Set. Reset. When we say the Haitian Revolution. Let's assume nobody knows anything about it. And I know some Haitians listening and some people who are Haitian revolutions folk. So I'm not an expert on the Haitian revolution, but like everything else, Africana studies is uh, the study of Africa when and wherever you find it. And it's not just the study of the African subject, however complex and sometimes many times contradictory that is. It is the process through which we study. So if you're saying you're doing Africana studies, that means you got to have a method. The method is to always begin to ask questions that help us reveal who these Africans are to each other, even as we are always cognizant of who they are to other people, other forces, other constructs. All right. This is the book that we talked about last week. This book, uh, this is the second edition of the book. This book was written in 1938, two years after the Saint Louverture play was written by the guy, the same guy, the Black Jacobins, Toussaint Louverture and the San Domingo Revolution. I didn't pull the uh, 1938 edition. I pulled the 1963 edition very purposefully because CLR James made some light edits. He changed some things around in the second edition. But what CLR James is doing 
Cyril Lionel Robert James, by the way, from the Caribbean, uh, from Trinidad, very important figure. Uh, you know, you, you think about CLR James, there are a number of good places to start. Um, but James was a scholar. James was a writer. James was a thinker. Uh, James was a very important figure. He wrote on everything from cricket, which was like the national sport there in the British Caribbean in particular, and the British colonies, India, other play Pakistan, for example. Um, but he wrote about politics. He wrote about, uh, he wrote as he organized, he wrote as he studied and thought. So if uh, I'm looking for Anna Grimshaw's book, I thought I had a copy of it around here, but I might not have pulled it. Oh yeah, here it is. This one's a little old, but it's a, it's a good place to start. C.L.R. James Reader, Anna Grimshaw, and there are a number of other books. If you want to read about the Black Jacobins and how it actually uh, kind of it had influence, you can get this more recent book. Uh, this is Rachel Douglas's book, Making the Black Jacobins, C.L.R. James and the Drama of History. But let's get to the man himself. What, what is a Jacobin? A Jacobin is almost a, uh, a person who is engaged in revolutionary struggle to create a different world, a different society, one based on radical equality. You know, in the French Revolution, they talk about liberty, equality, fraternity, 1789. I mean, so the black Jacobins were those who embraced a similar idea and Toussaint was at the center of their practice. So this is what the French say they're doing? Okay, then that's what we gonna do too. And that, that actually, by the time you get to 1791, two years after the so-called French Revolution, be, really gets going in earnest, you're in a moment when there's this quote unquote revolutionary fervor. I'll never forget there was an exhibition at the New York Historical Society I went up to see um, because at the same time they had the original draft of the 13th Amendment on display. And I remember standing there thinking about the fact that this piece of paper right here was supposed to grant people who were my ancestors some sense of hu legal humanity, also known as citizenship, which is a problem. But upstairs they had this uh, man, if I had to cat mm, the catalog is around here somewhere. Um, parenthetically, when you go to exhibitions, uh, if you got a few dollars over from the admissions fee, if you're going always check out the museum gift shop and always ask if there is an exhibition catalog, because the exhibition catalog will have not only pictures of much of the stuff that's in the exhibition, it's going to have many times long form essays about what you're looking at. It's important to get the exhibition catalog. And I remember that exhibition catalog because it had a black man's uh, uh, picture on the front. And, you know, and they get obsessed with this notion of these individual blacks who stick out like sore thumbs in these white societies to kind of reinforce the idea that there were radical black. In fact, we all know Alexander Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo. This is his uh, this is his grandfather, General Alex Dumas, who was with Napoleon, the black count. You know, so, so they always got these Negroes. It's interesting because he grew up, he lived at the same time as the Haitian Revolution. Very important. And of course, he ends up getting killed. They off this brother right here. Uh, born to a black slave mother, a fugitive white French nobleman in San Dominique. He's born in Haiti. Alex Dumas was sold into bondage, made his way to Paris, where he was schooled as a sword fighting member of the French aristocracy. When the revolution broke out, he joined the army at the lowest rank, yet quickly rose through a series of legendary feats to command more than 50,000 men. No matter how high he soared, Dumas continued to live by his blade and his boldness in the face of overwhelming odds. Yet because of his unwavering principles, he ultimately became a threat to Napoleon himself. If you've never heard of General Alex Dumas, I'm going to leave it right there. All right. Y'all had to check out the Black Count. But on the cover of the exhibition catalog at this freedom exhibit at the New York Historical Society, when I went up there to see it, they, they're talking about how black people participated in this quote unquote age of revolutions. So when we think of these revolutions in the 1770s and the 80s, we think of the American Revolution. We think of the French Revolution. 
But this exhibition made clear, along with put, putting on display a copy, and I, I never forget, I, I, um, I uh, emailed my friend, a uh, former student, now colleague at Howard, uh, Natalie Pierre, who's uh, one of those 20% of Africans who came from other places. She's from Brooklyn, but her mom and them came from Haiti. So uh, she's Haitian. Uh, in fact, uh, Natalie, and we'll talk about this in a minute, in 2010, when the earthquake happened, she was down there writing her dissertation. Her dissertation is uh, on the idea of Haitian statecraft. It's a very important piece of work, in fact, where she talks about this. Uh, she's, she's talking about the idea of how did the Haitians try to create a country in the wake of this revolution. But at any rate, that exhibition talks about these revolutions, but they put they elevate the Haitian. I say elevate because it's a social structure conversation. It ain't us talking to each other. So in other words, to invite the Haitian revolution in is to say, see, we understand this is global and it's not just black, white people. It's black, they, the black Jacobins. Let's go to CLR James. <laughs> the thing I love about it, and you know, we all love language for different reasons. Different language for different reasons, right? The language of comic books is different than the language of the Bible. Not always. I'm early. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But the thing I love about C.L.R. James is that in the language that he uses, C.L.R. James is a poet, man. C.L.R. James writes. I mean, he's like Du Bois in that sense. If you're not used to reading writing that is written to a certain high standard, not high, I'm going to say high standard in context, a certain use of language, you can very easily find yourself either my students, some of my students might say they're bored. You're not bored because boredom literally means you've mastered something so well that it no longer retains your interest. You didn't understand that. So you can't be bored. Bored means you understood it so well that you now, okay, let me move on to the next thing. No, you're not bored. You stop trying because the language has literally been machined into these sound bites. Pause. Let me just get to James. You know what I'm saying? And I know, you know, listen, not only as a former, as an English major, not only as a journalist, not only as a best-selling author, Karen, you've literally had to create and remachine and wordsmith and edit and think through people's testimonies, people's narratives with the reader in mind. And so probably better than all of the thousands of people who are joining us as they do every Saturday, you know as well or better as any of us how thinking through how the reader will consume this language has probably had to shift the way you've written. Absolutely. Oh my God. I can't even imagine for a writer like you what that must what that must feel like over the arc of enough years to see the patterns change so that now if it ain't in 280 characters, now how am I writing CLR James, thank God, was not consumed with that in the first or second edition. This is what he says. CLR James says in 1789. The French West Indian colony of San Domenico, Domingo, San Domingo, supplied two thirds of the overseas trade of the overseas trade of France, and was the greatest individual market for the European slave trade. It was an integral part of the economic life of the age, the greatest colony in the world, the pride of France, and the envy of every other imperialist nation. The whole structure rested on the labor of half a million slaves. Mm. In August 1791, after two years of the French Revolution and its repercussions in San Domingo, the slaves revolted. The struggle lasted for 12 years. The slaves defeated in turn the local whites and the soldiers of the French monarchy. 
a Spanish invasion, a British expedition of some 60,000 men, and a French expedition of similar size under Bonaparte's brother-in-law. The defeat of Bonaparte's expedition in 1803 resulted in the establishment of the Negro state of Haiti, which has lasted to this day. The revolt is the only successful slave revolt in history and the odds it had to overcome its evidence of the magnitude of the interests that were involved, the transformation of slaves, trembling in hundreds before a single white man into a, a people able to organize themselves and defeat the most powerful European nations of that day is one of the great epics of revolutionary struggle and achievement. Why and how this happened is the theme of this book. Haiti's still paying. George Washington, it's impressive. Napoleon, it's impressive. Toussaint, Desolée, Christophe, wait, it's really not y'all? It's these black, these black women and men with machetes? Where the heck? Wait, and y'all won? Wait, y'all beat Napoleon? Yeah, his brother-in-law came back for a rematch. We whipped that ass. Oh, oh, wow, okay. So, but I thought you wanted to be with them. Oh, no, it's complicated. Wait, so let me get this straight. Here's where we go through the real quick thumbnail history. And I'm not even going to go through the dates because y'all y'all can read it for yourself. But before you do. Yes, yes. Haiti has to fail for this white power structure to succeed. That's exactly So it has to fail. It has to fail today. Yes. It has to fail today. That's right. It has to fail for the same reason Black Wall Street had to fail. It has to fail. No, actually, for a bigger reason than Black Wall Street. It has to fail. For the same reason that you Negroes can't ever be allowed to go off and police yourselves, even when you say you are loyal subjects of the crown, which is what Toussaint said. In fact, I'm not even going to go too far into this, but I got to read this sentence. Right? This is the prologue. Because remember, before there was Africans in Haiti, before there were Spanish, before there were English, before there were these buccaneers or anybody else in Haiti, before the Caribbean was ungovernable, the human beings who were there, the Tainos, the Arawaks, in fact, Taino is where we get the word Haiti from. So if you're Haitian, you know, you don't say Haiti. You say Haiti, Haiti, the high place. Because that was what, when uh, Desalines is asking, you know, what did they call this place before? Because they ain't gonna call it San Dominique no more. Hell no. Hell no, we ain't calling it that no more. We done beat they ass. So what should we call it? Well, what did they call it before? Everybody, all these people always showed up and drug us over here. Well, one name was the high place, Haiti. Daino, okay. Haiti, that's the name. So understand, oh no, it has to fail. Because, well, anyway, look, this is what he said. Look at this, I love it. I ain't gonna read but one sentence. This is the first sentence of the prologue. CLR James writes, Christopher Columbus landed first in the new world at the island of San Salvador. And after praising God, inquired urgently for gold. <laughs> See? See, that's one of them books. <laughs> I'm see, I, I ain't got no shade on anybody. When you got a writer like CLR James, he's gonna pull you through every moment in that conflict. And let's just reduce that conflict very quickly to a couple of things. We'll, we'll go through a quick chronology. Columbus claims Saint Dominique in the name of the king and queen of Spain. There's a whole nother backstory with them, you know, in 1492, right? And then of course, almost immediately, he started capturing the natives who helped him. There was a storm. They rescued all their stuff. And they, they didn't, nothing got misplaced or stolen. These people are, man, they certainly naive. Look at their clothes. And they don't speak our language. So therefore, they, they just these savages. I mean, these Indians. I'm looking for Indians. You know, let's snatch a few of them and put them on the boat. We're going to take them back. 
Then you got a priest, Bartholomew de la Casa, you know, read his book, The Devastation of the Indies, while he's like, you know, this here is, uh, this is immoral. What the hell? But I know we got to make this money. So why don't you just go get the black people? <laughs> so la casa is caught up in the contradictions of europe he's caught up in the contradictions of spain he's saying columbus what you doing these people is crazy disease is wiping them the hell out they have no protection against the disease we're gonna see disease come back in about five minutes in the haitian revolution for another reason because then they do start getting the africans they wipe out the population of the caribbean just like everywhere else in the western hemisphere through disease and ain't through killing everybody although they are brutal they killing they attacking sick and dog i don't know what it is about europeans and sick and dogs on people it's a long tradition. Every time I tell my students, for example, you be you be watching them documentaries. You see a German Shepherd out there in Selma or Birmingham, you know. And I said, imagine them dogs talking to each other. It's just my grandfather bit a man in Birmingham. That's the best of police dog today. Yeah, my, I'm a long line of dogs. My great my great grandmother bit a black woman in Selma. I mean, in other words, why y'all always sticking dogs? That's why the Congolese, for example, well, not Congolese, the Congo, by Congo, others of Mbundu. The people on Zaire, what was called Zaire then, we're going to talk about that in a minute, too, in terms of how some of these dictators tried to use African culture as a weapon to keep the people in place, call themselves being heroes of African culture, but they were really dictators. That's what you see Mobutu do in Congo after Patrice Lumumba is killed with his help was really the CIA and England and Belgium and the United States in the middle of it during the Kennedy administration after they off Patrice Lumumba and they used Joseph Mobutu and a cat like Moshe Tshambi in Katanga to do it. Then when, when uh, uh, Joseph Mobutu comes in as the leader of Congo, he says, we're going to go back to Africa. We're going to do the Africa. He makes a leopard skin hat. He keeps a stick. He changed his name to Mobutu Sese Seko. And he says, this is going to be authentic, authenticity. So we're going to change the name to Zaire. But that's one reason why the black people in Zaire were cheering so hard for George uh, for uh, Muhammad Ali when he beat George Foreman's ass in 1974. It's a brand new book called Rumble in the Jungle that continues that conversation uh, about what happened because George Foreman got off the damn plane with a dog on a leash and they looking at him like that's the same damn dog the Belgians got. Okay, Ali Boubaye, Ali kill him. Why? Because if you know Kikongo cosmology, you know that the Kalunga line, which separates the living from the dead, those of us on top of the ground from the ancestors, is considered a line that is water, and that line is policed by dogs. Dogs have always had this kind of uh, kind of uh, crossroads figure, all the way back to the ancient Egyptians, Ampu. You know, when you look at the Greek uh, Cerebus, that three-headed dog, the Greeks didn't even make that up. They just stuck two more heads on a dog. You got to go back to the original canines of the ancient Egyptians because remember in, in the Greeks, Cerebus is the one that helps the ferryman take you over into the land of the dead on the river. Why? Water is very important for Africans and dogs be around water, which is why you don't see a lot of dogs as pets in Africa, although dogs always be around. Dogs run with dogs. So if you go in the bush or you go in the village, you go to, you see a dogs, the dogs be with other dogs and they walk around. You you have them around, but you don't really be having them in your house like that. So at any rate, um, so they were sticking dogs on people, Columbus and them. It was disease. It was dogs. It was guns. It was working them to death. La Casa says, go get the Africans. They go get the Africans. And when they bring the Africans, they also bring other things they hadn't meant to bring. Uh, there's a long line of scholarship on this. There's a book called The Columbian Exchange, which was from years ago, but it's not been written since. What comes over on those boats that wasn't intended to come? Seeds, plants. Sometimes the Africans brought them, secreted them away in orifices or kept them somewhere because and then they reproduced over here. Sometimes they went in their hair, just, just happened to be there, you know, and, and, and it ends up catching on over here in the Western Hemisphere. Also mosquitoes. Them African mosquitoes? 
Where do we get to this in a minute? Because uh, after Susan is killed, when you see Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the mosquitoes become part of the Haitian army. But at any rate, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, these cats, man. Oh, my God. Anyway, so 1492, Columbus comes, claims, you know, he, he lands first at the one little island. Then he goes over to San Dominique, which becomes Haiti and Dominican Republic. He claims that in the name of France. Okay, cool. Then 1697, they have a Treaty of Ryswick, which cedes the western third of what is saying now San Dominique to France. Why? Because before that, like I said, the white boy's been hiding out, the buccaneers in the north. You see Haiti, it's almost like a, a, a claw. You got a north, you got a south. Right in the north, you got uh, that's where they was going up around. That's the one closer to uh, to what is now the United States. And remember, Spain is first out in there. So Spain had Florida. Spain was uh, trying to uh, have also uh, what we now call Louisiana after Louis, uh, who gets killed in the Haitian uh, in the uh, French Revolution. But Spain was fighting back and forth. New Orleans, in fact, Spanish town, French town, Spanish town, French town. And remember now, we talk about 1619 Project. No, go back a century before Spain had gone into what is now North Florida and then South Carolina, trying to put their little territory there. And the Africans turned up, got with the Native Americans. They said, F that. They, they went back south. But they finally settled and cede Spain, the eastern third of the island. They keep, I'm sorry, the western third of the island. Spain keeps the rest. And that's what, that's what the Dominican Republic is. Um, then you have a number of people. In fact, this is where I want to introduce another book. This is the first book I read on the Haitian Revolution. It's not written by a Haitian. It's written by Jacob Carruthers, the irritated genie. We talked about this before. It's my man Larry Crow did this. Did the uh, did the uh, the artwork? And what Jacob Carruthers did in 1985, he wanted to write a book to talk about a place that would get us thinking about the nature of how we could create governing societies for ourselves wherever we are in your neighborhood in your state, in your country, in a whole country. So he wrote about the Haitian Revolution. And what he does is gives us a very good sense of resistance because they started resistance almost as soon as they got there. 1503, 1503. This is within a decade of them bringing Africans. The Africans start running away on the island and creating maroon communities. 1503, they escaped from the Spanish just before the French got there. They sent the first official shipment of Africans in 1508. Now I'm going to speed this up because we will we, be here all day if I start talking about this. From 1522, they had the first major revolt of enslaved Africans. You see another one in 1537. You see another one in 1548. You come forward another half, half century. The English and French, they settle on the western part of the island around then. And that's when you see another wave of buccaneers. It's 1629. 1659, the French government begins to assume control of the western part of the island, which was eventually renamed Haiti. So 1659, they're in place. But then you see rebellions against the French. 1679, Partisan led a revolt. 1691, uh, you see Jeannot Morin and Pierre uh, Pierrot lead blacks in revolt. The major piece we see, however, that is usually in Haitian... Um, Haitian memory is by a dude named Francois Macandal. Macandal, and I'm sure the people who are watching now who are Haitian are like, Macandal, yeah, yeah, Macandal. Macandal was the man. Macandal was a young cat when he was kidnapped from Africa and brought over, and they tried to break him and make him into a, um, make him into a good slave. 
He ended up losing his arm in an accident. There's not much known from mouth to ear history about him. A lot of it is legendary. Did he lose it in a sugar mill? Because sugar was their thing. Haiti was Haiti took over from Jamaica as the richest colony in the world. Understand that the sugar, the cotton, the products that came out of Haiti were the French economy, were the French economy. And as Haiti begins to emerge, what you see is that this guy from Corsica, little spit poop butt uh, part of the French, uh, of France, French territories, named Napoleon, not born to high birth or whatever. He eventually rises through the rank through hard work and sacrifice, becomes uh, a major military officer, engages in all these campaigns. Uh, he, he ends up going to, to, to Egypt. Y'all heard about him in Egypt. You hear him invading, you know, Italy, all this kind of thing. And eventually his job is he, he becomes what they call the first council. In other words, he becomes the major thug in Europe. And of course, he ends up overreaching in 1815 takes that L at Waterloo, but we'll get to that in a second. I'm not, I promise you I won't go much longer. I just want to mention a few other things in this chronology. Mackendall is his people's he hero. Mackendall is like, you know, I think we should be free. So Mackendall leads a rebellion. And Mackendall leads a rebellion, and uh, as I said, and he begins in, in, in 1751. He begins organizing maroon communities. He And, and here's, here's their strategy. They're going to poison all the French. In fact, to this day, the name Mackendall is coterminous with poison. <laughs> with poison. In other words, you poison people. And see, the Africans are funny about poison, man. And by the Africans, I mean us too. <laughs> the roots of Vodun, and Vodun is like I said, means spirits or, or, or laws is kind of like the, the elevated, the enlightened ones who once were human and now became ancestors and now move into these larger figures. And we're going to talk much about Vodun today, except to say that Europeans have always demonized it and black people believe in it. You say, I don't believe in voodoo. That's that old devil. No, see, you do believe in it. Why? Because if you didn't, you wouldn't pay any attention. So, but, but part of how these Africana ways of knowing operate is it's very personal. It's very tactile. It's very relational in terms of literal relationships. So poison is a big deal. It could be spiritual poison. It could be literal poison, like stuff, stuff you put in your food. So for example, I'm sure you've heard this, Karen. Somebody who's listening or watching right now heard this. You know, elders will say, particularly women, don't, uh, boy, don't you just eat anybody's red sauce? Why can't you eat just eat anybody's red sauce? Red is the color of blood when it come out your vein. And somebody could put something in there and work something on you. Oh, yeah. First time I came home with my hair plaited in the summertime and there wasn't nobody in my family, wasn't a cousin or who been in your head? Huh? Uh-huh. Another girl. Do we know this girl? Is this girl somebody I know? Is this girl been over here? What What does that mean? That means because hair is part of you. You don't let just anybody be in your head. Why? Because they could get some of your hair. They get some of your hair. They could work something on you. Toussaint, when he was meeting with uh, 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 Leclerc, who was Napoleon's brother-in-law, he said, would you like something to eat? He said, no, I'm good. Just give me some water. What? What did you mean? Water? Yeah. Because I can't eat nothing, y'all. Y'all around poison me. Why? Go. Mock and doll them like, we'll poison everybody. They capture Mock and doll. They put him to death in, well, well, 1758, he is arrested 
and he's taken off the scene. Now, those in certain ways of knowing will say he turned into a mosquito and flew away. They'll say that they put him at the stake. He slipped away and ran away. Some people say he evaporated on the stake. And look, in this season of Easter, and y'all know Easter is the uh, first full moon after the equinox, uh, the idea that Jesus was in the tomb and then they rolled the stone away and he was gone. And if you read the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only one of them is an eyewitness account. What they say is the lady came and said, yeah, I saw it. And so they, none of them had no direct eyewitness of it. And the idea that he was resurrected, then he came back and appeared, right? Uh, not to get too deep into this, we might have to do another one. We got another uh, week. We got to take your time. And we're going to take our time on that one because the equinox, basically, I, I will mention this, however, the vernal equinox, where the day and the night are of equal length, had to sync up with other European traditions, which allowed the um, which allowed the um, the expanding European version of Christianity to colonize the ways of knowing of other Europeans who didn't see themselves as Europeans at the time, of course. So you've got the uh, 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 the Sumerian uh, Ishtar, you've got uh, Kemet had Heru. In other words, this idea of resurrected saviors is not new. But that vernal equinox is interesting because uh, you've got Eostre, for example, who was German. This was quote unquote pagan Europe. And when the Christians came in, they was like, Easter? What is it? Yeah, that's the rebirth. Okay, we got like rituals. We got spring equinox rituals. Yeah, well, it's kind of similar. Okay, how is that similar? Well, we got this resurrection. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we'll do. So, in fact, maybe next week we can talk about Easter so we can you can ask yourself, how did a rabbit from a German spring equinox ritual show up carrying eggs that you go out and hunt on the Saturday before the Easter Sunday at your church and that's connected to Jesus? Yeah, all that's European remixing. You know what that is? That's European version of voodoo. So don't be bad at voodoo, which is Africa reblended, when every Easter we celebrate Europe reblended. Because that's where the Easter eggs come from. That's where the Easter bunny comes from. You stuck it on Jesus because Easter is where it is in the calendar because it is a ritual of the triumph of the day over the night, over the sun, over death. Not S-O-N-S-U-N because the equinox means that the days are going to be longer than the night. Remember, the man stayed in the grave three days. Remember, the equinox begins 1920 or 21st. Let's, we'll get to that anyway. But. The point I'm trying to make is these African ways of knowing that blend in Vodun are central to what Makandal tries to bring off. They say that they killed him, but the revolutionary fervor continues. So then what happens? They continue to rebel. 1671 to 1775, you see rebellions. Uh, you see Telemark, Changa, different ones. Now, 1779, Great Britain is going to lose its 13 colonies. They're in the American Revolution. France is supposed to be helping the, uh, the, the, the colonies, right? Because they don't like England anyway. They send some French, Lafayette, right? We all know Lafayette, but what people might not know is that a young teenager named uh, Henri Christophe, who ends up being the king of Haiti, who helps in the Haitian Revolution, one of the leaders of the Haitian Revolution, was part of the contingent they sent in uh, what they call the Battle of Savannah, among other places. So he's actually, th these are French they are under control of the French, even as they are enslaved. Now, that's going to become important in a second. Let's get to it now. The French Revolution, 1789. So a very deep oversimplification is the poor people ain't got nothing to eat. 
the monarchies out there, you know, they treating them like, you know, kind of like, you know, what you see today in some places, except they ain't gonna take it no more. Except this time, they don't storm the United States Capitol. They storm the Bastille, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And they don't just walk around in there and take a dump in there or take pictures and take Nancy Pelosi's laptop. No, they actually get their Mike Pence. <laughs> And King Louis is beheaded. So then they start beheading the rich people, which would be a difference than today, because some of them rich people were the ones who actually fomented that rebellion in January here in the United States. Again, the United States is a jack leg place anyway, but that's all another conversation. What you see then is in the wake of that revolution, they're saying we're gonna have liberty, equality, fraternity, Jacobin movement, we're gonna have this revolutionary fervor. And so, of course, Saint Dominique is a territory of France and Napoleon is charged by then he's risen up in the uh french government he's charged with maintaining order and so the french then look and say well are we going to free africans in our colonies yeah no nah. but we will say there are only two categories slave and free but guess what you got in saint dominique you got these people who are of mixed parentage what they call the free blacks of color the free men of color I say men, but free women, free men and women of color. Well, they're not slaves. Are they free? You saying they free? What did the French say? Yeah, they are free. And the French assembly in 1791 gives them their freedom. Now, here's what we got to be real careful. I'm, I'm looking at the clock. I want to be clear. What's important to understand is the Haitian model is really one that is obviously based on enslavement and the overwhelming majority of Africans who are enslaved in Haiti are enslaved in the countryside. They're not in Port-au-Prince. They're not in Capetian. They're not in the cities. They're not in the city. So the free blacks of color are given freedom, but just don't touch those Africans who are suffering. By the time you get to 1791, the half million that CLR James opens the black Jacobins with. And this is why Jean Fauchard's uh, book is so important. Jean Fauchard is like these them rural Negroes. Pause. Contrast the United States. In the United States, because of enslavement and because of expansion, who gets empowered? The rural whites. The rural whites. That is the foundation for the United States. Settler expansion and putting white people in a position to maintain control by saying the, the, the Indians aren't human. I'm using that pejorative for a reason. The Indians aren't human. The blacks aren't human. You're the only human in the territory. So we're going to let you in based on the number of you that are in there. Or in the South, it's like, what about our blacks? Okay, fine. We'll count two thirds of the blacks. I'm sorry. We'll count three fifths of the blacks, 60% of the blacks, but they have no rights. Okay. So that means that I can ride into Congress based on the, on sixty on three fifths of the blacks that I have in my state, and once I'm in there, I make laws without them in mind. Yes, okay. Now I understand. This is why I say the United States is going to disintegrate. The United States, the anti-Haiti. In Haiti, the blacks in the rural area, anywhere else, didn't have any rights. But most of the blacks are in the rural area. In the United States, the whites in the rural area get more power than the whites in the urban areas on the East Coast and eventually all the way around. So what are we left at right now? In Haiti to this day, you have uh, not only tension, but a separate class interest between the money elites in Petionville, the money elites in Port-au-Prince, the money elites 
who with one exception, one exception, not Papa Doc, who was a medical doctor going out in the countryside, healing people, which is where he got the name Papa Doc. He's helping people. He rides that in. Then he gets in and uses this notion of authenticity. Again, a very important series of uh, black thinkers that come out of Haiti who are fascinating and brilliant on the question of culture, but who are often used for cross purposes like this dude right here, Jean-Priest Mars. Very important. Y'all check out Jean-Priest Mars. Jean-Priest Mars is like, we got to get this African thing back together. There's another book uh, called Jean-Priest Mars in Haiti by Jacques Anton. It's very important to talk about that. Writers, uh, writers like um, Jacques Romain. This is uh, Charlie Cobb's mother, actually. Martha Cobb, Harlem, Haiti and Havana. They're talking about culture, but what Duvalier is going to do is tap into that culture to use it to repress. So he's going to use Vodun. He's going to use this notion of authenticity like Mobutu did in Zaire, as I was saying, what became Congo. But in the United States, the culture, the nationalism, they invest in the whites in the rural areas. And as they expand in these states that are what we come up with now in Haiti, you've got people in the countrysides, micro land tenants. Because ownership is very important. The one example, the one difference, uh, the one person since the Haitian Revolution who was not part of that elite was the one who was elected by popular vote. 1991, then they put him out after several months. Then Bill Clinton, who is no friend of Haiti, him and Hillary and their Clinton Foundation coming in there with that neoliberal uh, approach. And neoliberalism is, is, well, I'll talk about that in a second, was Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Regardless of whoever else he was or wasn't, he was beloved by the people, this priest. They wanted to put him out of his Catholic order. Uh, he he came with Lavalier, the, 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 uh, what they call the flood. In other words, I'm representing the poor in Haiti. I'm representing all the Haitians. I'm representing all of us, but I'm representing all the people who ain't got nothing. They're in the countryside and that tension is there, which is one reason why the United States uh, looked the other way and also aided and abetted Froff, which was a, another iteration of the Tutankhamun, which is uh, Jean, uh, uh, the the uh, the um, Duvalier clan's thugs. They supported them when they were they, they trained them in Florida. They trained them at the schools for the Americas in Georgia. They were hiding in the Dominican Republic. They had American guns and stuff. They came over the borders. They took Aristide out once. Then ninety four, Clinton brings him back. But by then, you've got him trapped. This is what Randall Robinson is writing about. Trapped by what? You've surrounded him. He tried to defang the military at the first time they brought him in. The second time they brought him in, you got him trapped. You got these neoliberal policies and you're going to basically make him kiss the ring. But, I, but I'll come to that in a second. That's the only one who was popularly elected because the, 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 the tension is between the vast majority of Haitians who aren't part of that elite and that tiny elite who love Haiti who love nationalism, but they also love stealing. They also love tax evasion. They love, and you know, so they can be proud cultural Haitians and talk about Toussaint, talk about Dessalines, talk about even Henri Christophe, they know all the history, but what they not is the Haitian Maroons. Now contrast that to the United States, the anti-Haiti. When you invest in the rural people, you've got a democracy now. And your democracy is based on the cultural logic of the people you've invested in. If they have been able to pull off a, an investment in Haiti in the rural people. This is what Natalie is writing about in her dissertation, which I'm sure will soon be a book. This is what, in fact, this is a great book that just came out, Jean Casimir. It's called The Haitians, A Decolonial History. This is what uh, Jean Casimir is talking about, in fact. He calls them the uh, Mont 
Andeo, the largely African-descended rural peasantry. These are the people who helped lead the revolution. When you read, for example, um, uh, Warfare in Atlantic Africa, John Thornton's book. I I'm going to come to that in a second. I'm going to wrap all this up, tie this up together in a second. But I want to make this point on America before we go any further, because this is the inflection point to contrast between the United States of America and Haiti. They invested in the rural folk in the United States. It's called the Electoral College. It's called the United States Senate. And so what do you have? The rural power in the United States is invested in the cultural mythology of the United States. That ain't you, Professor Hunter. That ain't me. That ain't no. That ain't no. That's them rural whites who get two senators apiece. That's them rural whites in a country of 330 million. In a country of 330 million. 50 of the senators in the United States Senate represent 143 million people. And 50 of the senators in the United States Senate represent 185 million. There's a 43 million person gap in this country between senators represented by the White Nationalist Party and senators represented by the Democratic Party. Why? Because the rural investment gives, and let's just think about this for a second. You know, the 51st uh, smallest state and I'm counting D.C. in it, is Wyoming. They got 578,000 people and two senators. 0.17% of the American population. 50th is Vermont. White as hell. They got 623,000 people. Now, they white as hell and they liberal because, you know, slavery, okay, fine. You got Bernie Sanders in it. 49th is D.C. with over 700,000 people. Next, Arkansas, 731,000 people, two Republicans. North Dakota, 884,000 people, two Republicans. South Dakota, 762,000, uh, two Republicans. And then you keep going, you keep going. You get to the first state with over a million people is Rhode Island, number 44. And to get to 1% of the American population, you got to go to number 29, Connecticut. They got 1.07. The one, the country that's number 30, I'm sorry, the city, the state that's number 30 in this country is Utah. They got 0.97% of the U.S. population and they got two centers. What does that mean? That unlike Haiti, which if they had empowered the rural folk in state building, and this isn't a critique of Toussaint, this isn't a critique of Christophe, this isn't a critique of Dessalines, which I'm going to wind this together, because they're trying to create something they've never seen. Toussaint is allied with the French initially, switches to the Spanish, switches back to the French. They kidnap him, take him to France. Dessalines is like, F that. Man could have been a king. That's what C.L.R. James writes in the last part of the play, uh, Toussaint L'Ouverture. We, maybe, maybe we should go with kingship. This is what Natalie is writing about in her dissertation. Maybe we should go with kingship. Why? Because our people know about kings. Because we had that structure in Africa, like we talked about last week. It ain't like the European structure, though. Uh huh? So, and then Christophe is like, well, hell, why would I stop being king? Emperor. So maybe we should do the imperial model. Let's liberate the Dominican Republic. We'll take the whole damn island. And so for a minute, it's like, yeah, Dessalines gets assassinated by his people. Dessalines is an interesting figure because in Dessalines' court, he's got these brilliant black folk who are beginning to think through, what does it mean to create a black country from scratch? We can't trust these Frenchmen. Now, why do I mention them? Let me mention one of them because I wrote about these cats in my dissertation. I became fascinated with them. This is Baron Devasti. 
the colonial system unveiled. People about France Fanon, look up Baron Devasty. Look this brother up because um, he was born in 1781. He made transition in 1820. Baron Devasty is a fascinating figure. Devasty is like, how do we overthrow the thinking of slavery? Mind you, the gun smoke is still being smelled. The French coming back for a rematch because once, uh, once they've got Toussaint, they sent Leclerc, who is uh, Napoleon's brother-in-law, to go, you know, take Toussaint out. But, 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 I mean, let, let, let me let me not get too far. Let me make the American uh, the American comp uh, the American comparison, and then I'll go back to finish the chronology. When you have a nation state, nation meaning common culture, common language, common memory. State meaning the form of government you have. America is not a nation state. America is a state with many different nations in it. And it was built as a settler state with a with an emerging national concept of whiteness, one that was locked into the structure as a result of investing these whites, largely rural whites. This is stuff you learn in elementary school. America is really about small farmers and hard work. And, you know, and talked about rural and Thomas Jefferson was a farmer, a farmer really is a farmer, not a slave owner. The Africans was farming. But at any rate, that mentality then situates the concept of America, the nation concept with whiteness, which is why, you know, Donald Trump, whose people just came here yesterday can say our country. You know, when you, when you talk about our country, our country, our country means the white nation, the one out there in Idaho, the one out there in Utah, but they're Mormons. No, whiteness trumps everything. And they get two senators, which means I don't give a damn how many of you blacks and Puerto Ricans are in New York City. How many of you Negroes come to Atlanta? How many of you uh, uh, indigenous folk or Chicanos or Latinos, however you want to call whatever label they're trying to get you to keep you sliced and diced are in L.A. or Austin or Houston, Texas. You get two senators, too. And as long as we have whiteness invested in these places and you don't overrun those places with your babies. We're going to run this to the wheel fall off. And guess what? Our friend in the White House, Donald, no, not Donald Trump, our friend in the White House, Joe Biden, who refuses to stare white nationalism in the face and understand how this country is structured, is still running around talking about reaching across the damn aisle. You fool. Do you understand that they're going to run this till the wheels fall off? And you know what that means? The wheels getting ready to fall off. Why? Because it ain't but so many more times. People are going to put up with two senators from South Dakota and two from North Dakota deciding whether somebody can get a stimulus check, whether somebody can get health insurance for their children, or whether somebody can get their unemployment insurance extended, whether somebody can stay in this country, whether somebody can get their student loans forgiven, whether somebody can actually go and get medical care without having to worry about going bankrupt. And ain't but so many more times we're going to put up with Iowa and North and South Dakota and Wyoming determining, and meanwhile, an old ghoul in Kentucky chuckles because he understands that while y'all talking about America. He just got white visions in his head. Do you understand the lesson of Haiti? If you understand the lesson of Haiti, you will understand that there comes a time, and if you read C.L.R. James, the second edition, he will tell you because he adds a uh, he adds a conclusion in the second edition. The second edition has a conclusion called um, come on, son. The second edition has a conclusion. I'm looking for the table of contents because I could quote it from uh, remember, here it is. It's called From Toussaint L'Ouverture to Fidel Castro. He's written, he puts the second edition out four years after the uh, Cuban Revolution. And he says here, he says, I'm adding this because in 1938, I said the same thing about Africa. 
He said, when you look at the Haitian Revolution, it's a preview of what's going to happen in Africa. And then he says here in the second edition, and it came to pass, although people weren't saying it. He said, now I'm going to show you this is what's going to happen in Cuba. And it came to pass. Meaning what? All right, let me pause. Because people might say, you're all over the place. Now, let's bring it all together. This is a five-minute thing. It's a five-minute thing. When last we left, when last we left the chronology, the French assembly had given the free people of color in Haiti equal rights, 1792. The white planners, the French planners, did not like that. They were like, these niggas the same as us? And the people of color is like, yeah, we the same as you. The French said we citizens. Guess what? The rural blacks? Wait, we not? Revolution, which they've been turning up since Columbus got there. So they have this ceremony in 1791, the year before, in a place called Boys Came On. All you, all you, all you, uh, all you Africans from Haiti know about the Boys Came On ceremony. Uh, Cecile Fatima is the Vodun priestess, the Mambo who gets the thing jumping. She's at the tree. You know what I'm saying? Because they, you know, there's like this is what, and, and it's really the festival of Ogun. So they they dealing with Vodun, with the spirit tradition they put together. If you want to know about Vodun, uh, Digimon Hansu, who is from Benin, did a nice little documentary called. Uh, uh, in search of Vodun. You can get, you can go out and, and look for Digimon Hansu's piece. But anyway, so uh, Cecile Fatima has got them going, they got the thing together, and then the priest, Duddy Bookman, gets up and makes this speech that Jacob Carruthers talks about in The Irritated Genie. He's saying, you know, y'all cast down this thing. The whites have brought all this pain on us, they done done all this damage to us. We do not speak with the God of the whites, we speak with our God and that liberty that lives in all our hearts. Now, what uh, C.L.R. James would say is, yes, Bookman is in that Jacobin spirit, but that spirit is African. And that's what you understand. This isn't the God of the whites. So you can't make peace with them. You can't send no priest up in here to say, let us all come. Man, you better get out of here with that bullshit. I'm going to put Dambala on you. I'm going to put the Rara and the Petro of Odun on you. I'm going to call the guardian of the crossroads. I'm about to send you to Papa Legba. You going to hell, whatever you believe. No, Oh, shit. and give me this machete. Wait, what? Karen, why can't they take the machetes from the Africans? Because the machetes is what they use to cut sugarcane. Sugarcane. So, in other words, it cuts sugarcane nice and it cuts nets nice. So, after the ceremony at Boyce came on, which is legendary, it is considered the jump off of something that's been going on for centuries. But the 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 the, the tipping point, 1791. The tipping point of the Haitian Revolution. Two years into the French Revolution, the Haitians in the countryside, the Africans is like, we know this is some bullshit. They tried to recruit the free people of color over. And then guess what? 1792, Toussaint is rising through. He's going to be a leader of this rebellion. What does he do? Toussaint realizes, yeah, they're going to renege. But he says at first, he said, you know, you promote me. I'm French, you know, and then he switches sides because the blacks ally with Spain. Spain don't like France. They don't like Napoleon. They're going to fight against the French. And what do the blacks realize? Since we ain't going to be French, we'll go with the Spanish because our ultimate goal is liberation. Now, why is that important? Because the leaders of the revolution, oh no, what did I do with it? I thought I had a copy of it somewhere around here. The leaders of the revolution, I have to see. I don't know what to deal with it. The lead, ah, yes, here we go. The leaders of the revolution are, we think about Toussaint, who was educated. 
we think about uh, Desalines, who comes after him, and Christophe, who comes after him, who were enslaved as well, but didn't have that same education. This is something John uh, Thornton says that's very important to understand. What he says is that, let me read this. He says that what you see in Haiti is a rebellion that is really allowed to jump off, that jumps off well because of those Africans who had been fighting each other in Africa or fighting for the same place. It was from the Africans who had come from Africa who best knew what to do. Let me read it. He says, he says, um, contemporary observers often thought these revolts were the product of some sort of inherent militancy on the part of the rebels. This sort of thing was said in the Spanish Indies in the 16th century of the Jolof and would be repeated many times with regard to the Coromantes as well. That's Jamaica. What is more likely, however, is that the circumstance of enslavement in these groups, a high percentage of ex-soldiers, what? Perhaps the presence of former officers as well. These are African armies. And the rapid buildup and close proximity of former comrades in arms in American settings made the revolts possible. Even if the revolts were not simply led by former officers, as the St. John revolt was, certain features of military life are likely to have encouraged revolts. He says these complexities came to a head in the Haitian Revolution, the largest and most complex slave revolt in history. The African military background of some of the participants cannot explain all the events of the revolt, nor account for its leadership, even from the earliest times. But certainly, African soldiers also played a role in the revolt. The original revolt in 1791 was largely organized by Creole slaves who probably had no military experience at all. Creole meaning they were born on the island. He says, but but he don't mean Creole like white, black. He's talking about not only people who may be mixed race, but mostly people who was born. Creole meaning I was born in Haiti. I wasn't born in Africa. So he goes on to say, he says, but it was given strength by Africans who, according to early leaders, had served in African armies. The ex-soldiers did most of the fighting in the early weeks and were organized in ethnic-based units. Let me pause there. After they said this thing is going, oh, by the way, when they did that, when they had the boys came on ceremony, they went and started setting fire to the plantations. And within a, within a short time, they controlled the North Claw. Very important. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop with this. I'm just going to raise this. What Thornton says is there were enough people who were from Africa to say we're all for the same revolution, but we're going to fight based on our nations, based on our national groups. So they organized themselves and there were enough military people to know how to do guerrilla warfare. And that's what allowed Toussaint the time to build an army. And how did he build an army? This is the genius of Toussaint Louverture. And if you want to read about Toussaint Louverture, there have been a number of books. There's a publication out of New York called Jacobin. Uh, this is actually a book that they published as well on Toussaint Louverture, Fordick, and, and Hodgeberg. This is more, more, one of the more recent books. There are a couple of other good books on Toussaint. Um, I think I showed them in a previous uh, edition, so we won't get, get into that. But Toussaint says, I'm with the French. You know, make me the leader and i'll help you fight against the spanish and so the french are like okay well we'll deputize you so while the haitian revolution is going on and the people from the fields led by and commingle with the africans are engaging in this warfare against the french toussaint is using the french to build an army ostensibly to fight the spanish because the french have promised ultimately they're going to ab abolish enslavement completely and guess what a whole time they thinking y'all ain't gonna do that 
This is the genius. Y'all ain't gonna do that. And Napoleon asked, you know he was gonna renege. So when it's clear that they're going to renege, they switch sides to the Spanish to fight the, the, the French. And it's like, I never said we was gonna renege. Yeah, we know what y'all getting ready to do. And the French assembly, let's see this right quick. In 1794, the French assembly abolished slavery. Toussaint went with the, with the French and defeated the Spanish in 1795. And in 1797, the French made him the commander in chief of the island. And then 1798, using the French muscle, he defeats the English. And in 1799, there's a civil war between the black people and these free people of color. Why? Because, you know, the free people of color said, we're citizens, y'all y'all slaves, y'all free. Look, they promised us ultimately they're going to abolish slavery everywhere. And Napoleon became first council of France in 1799. And Toussaint then took the Spanish part of the island. For a moment, they had brought the whole thing together. They published a constitution in 1801. And in 1802, what happens? 1802, Leclerc, Napoleon's brother-in-law comes in and says, yeah, I'm here. I want to negotiate with Toussaint. Toussaint's like, yeah, uh, we all going to be free, right? The Spanish talking about these free people of color. I mean, the French talking about these free people of color, but we all going to be free, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. going to be free. Look, let's disarm the army. Let's get, you know, let's get them to lay their weapons down. And, and you know, what weapons? We use machetes too, you know? Oh, yeah, well, you can't get rid of the machetes. We need the sugar. Okay, well, anyway, long story short, they kidnap Toussaint, take him to uh, France, he dies in prison. Dessaline is like, told y'all. Then they come back and tell Dessaline, look, disarm the army. Are we gonna hunt? So Dessaline pretends to disarm and he stalls him. Why does he stall? Because it's getting ready to be the rainy season. And guess what happens in the rainy season? The rest of the Haitian army comes, known as the African mosquitoes. <laughs> the mosquitoes decimate the French military while Dessalines forces finish the job and they wipe out the French. At which point Dessalines is like, I have avenged America. 1803, Toussaint starves to death in that French prison. In November 1803, after that rainy season, the French surrender and get the hell out of Dodge and January 1st, 1804, Jean-Jean Dessalines and the Haitians proclaim independence they put a constitution together. He doesn't make it for about two years. He's assassinated. And then they have a civil war. They have a civil war. There are two independent states established in 1807. And that's problematic because Henri Christophe takes off after him. He takes the north. But in the south, you got another person on the throne. I mean, not a, he tried to create a democracy, but they but they have a problem because these rural blacks, they've never they haven't had the time to figure out what kind of state they're going to build. And they still need the money. So as they need the money, they've got to create an economy that will allow to export and trade, but they are surrounded by the French colonies, the British colonies, Toussaint. I mean, uh, Napoleon said he was going to abolish slavery. Then they find out, which is why Dessalines like, yeah, that's some bullshit. They reestablished enslavement in Martinique and Guadeloupe, the other French colonies. You got Jamaica, the English have it now, having taken it from Spain. They are surrounded by hostile groups. They're the only place in the Western Hemisphere that is free black. And they are terrifying everybody. Thomas Jefferson talking shit, man. But, but oh, I'm sorry, I should mention one other thing. Once they win in 18, uh, 1804, 
as it looks like they're going to win, these mosquitoes taking them out, and they and, and then the military is taking them out. Napoleon gets desperate. He trades with Spain to get full control over New Orleans and the whole middle part of the Mississippi Valley, which he was going to expand into an empire and use as revenue to take over all of Europe. But because of what these black women and men did to him, he sells that part of what becomes the United States to Thomas Jefferson and the Americans for $15 million. So everybody in those states, talking about Lewis and Clark and York, whether you're in Missouri, whether you're in Louisiana, all the way up to Minnesota and then West, you have the Haitians to thank. You have the Haitians to thank because they bankrupted Napoleon. And Napoleon needed that money to engage in his quest of attempts at conquest, which ended in 1815 at Waterloo, but the Louisiana purchase is because the Haitians robbed France of their ATM. <laughs> you understand? So uh, we don't have time today. Maybe we might keep going. But I, but, but I went through all that and I just did it very quickly because from, from that period, you have a period when uh, 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 Henri Christophe builds the Citadel. He says, y'all ain't never invading us again. So when you go to Haiti, it's built high on a cliff, right? In fact, when he died, he in fact, he killed himself because he was already sick. He thought there was going to be a coup. He was there to 1820. He's buried in Citadel, right? So he can look over everything to the north. So y'all ain't never coming back over here to bother us. They have, um, I didn't even get to the major thing with the United States. Abraham Lincoln did not in fact I, I pulled abe lincoln because some people love abe lincoln and i know i know they do so i try to i thought i had honest abe around here somewhere but i won't be able to find him either abe lincoln uh gave a speech to congress where he said yeah i'm trying to convince these negroes to leave oh here it is <laughs> he said i'm trying to convince these negroes to leave he gave this speech december the first 1862 he says um Applications have been made to me by many free Americans of African descent to favor their immigration, meaning with an E. 1862, you got some black people said, well, let's just leave. We'll go to Haiti. He says, with such a view to such colonization as was contemplated in recent acts of Congress. He says, uh, I have um, declined to move any such colony to any state. I'm not going to move it to any state without first obtaining the consent of its government. So he was talking about maybe Nicaragua. He's a, he says, Liberia and Haiti are as yet the only countries to which colonists of African descent from here could go with certainty of being received and adopted as citizens. And I regret to say such persons contemplating colonization do not seem so willing to migrate to those countries as to some others, nor so willing as I think their interest demands. He's Abraham Lincoln trying to figure out a way to get rid of y'all while y'all worshiping this man. And you got oh here are the two here 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 are two the two most recent books on Toussaint Toussaint Louverture Philippe uh, Giraud and Sadir as I talked about him before has a racing Black Spartacus the epic laugh of Toussaint Louverture but he's trying to get rid of y'all but what there's a whole body of scholarship on black people in the United States looking at Haiti for inspiration and saying maybe we should go this is Brandon Bird's most recent book the Black Republic African Americans and the Fate of Haiti. Here's a good edited piece with historical documents by my friend Maurice Jackson, who is at Georgetown, and Jacqueline Bacon called African Americans and the Haitian Revolution: Selected Essays and Historical Documents. And there, there are some other books, but I, but but I won't I won't go any further on that. Um, this the briefest. Go ahead. Yeah, 60, seconds, Sixty seconds to wrap this up because I mean we haven't even got to the twentieth century. Long story short, after uh, they reunify Haiti under Boyer, Boyer. You got Petion, Boyer. Uh, there's a whole storyline about trying to help Latin America emancipate itself. 
over the arc of the next century, Haiti is, uh, oh, by the way, United States recognizes Haiti in 1862. This is why Lincoln is talking. One reason is because the Civil War is going on and he's still trying to think about how we can have a United States without black people. That's that's uh, Lerone Bennett's piece. But from the end of the Civil War up into the first quarter of the 20th century, Haiti is kept at arm's length. There's some interesting thinkers like Antonier Furman. I wish we could talk, time to talk about Thurman. If you know the name Sheikh Antajoke, you should know the name Antonier Furman, who's writing about the equality of the races in the late 19th century. Very important figure. 1915, the United States Marines invade. The United States sends Marines to invade Haiti, and they occupy Haiti from 1915 to 1934, and they put down a rebellion. Uh, they execute some black folk who are trying to resist that rebellion, uh, resist their occupation. And that is the period, 1915 to 1934, arguably, that is the period when the United States puts most forcibly its two cents into keeping Haiti in the trouble it has been in since then. Because it is the United States who sets up the military. It is the United States who reinforces the elite in Haiti, who have always had a distance from the rural folk. After the United States leaves, that's when you see the rise ultimately over the next uh, couple of decades, eventually culminating in 1957 with the election of Papa Doc Duvalier, their baby Doc Duvalier, 1986. You see a series of military governments, coup d'etats back and forth, the United States, as long as what keeps coming. Uh, everything from baseballs, some of you baseball season coming up. I'm a baseball fan. When you see them baseballs being tossed around, look at where they're made and stitched. Dominican Republic, Haiti. All these cheap materials coming out, raw goods, because at the core of the United States foreign policy is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism means what? Heavy on foreign investment, heavy on uh, uh, controlling the masses to work for low wages, all that stuff. So when 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 Aristide shows up in 1991, they can't stop him because he's democratically elected, the first democratically elected person in Haiti, the first one. He's quickly destabilized because. Uh, he makes a call. Uh, well, this comes a little bit later, but he's saying we're going to redistribute this wealth. We're going to try to get some land ownership to these people in the rural areas. We're going to try to uh, we're going to get these people out the military. I want all you tax evaders to start paying your taxes. Shit, them people are like what the hell? So they coup. They have a coup d'état with him in a matter of months. Bill Clinton comes in, gets him reinstated. Why? Because the people are furious and Haiti is ungovernable and you that's bad for business. So the neoliberal Clinton comes in, they bring him back Aristide for a short period, but then they get, they, he's gotten rid of again because in, when they bring him back, he's still trying to be who he wants to be. But it's important to understand that a third time, 2004, which is what Randall Robinson is talking about. They get rid of him. He's doing things like on the 200th anniversary of the Haitian revolution. He's like, you know, that money we paid France, by the way, France made Haiti pay. Restitution, the only time in the history of the modern world that a country who won is a country that lost. They pay it though. That, can, we, can we talk about that next week? Because yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, in fact, let's get to modern Haiti next week. Yeah. yeah that, that was the bane that they even paid their, the repair, you know, the repair. Because they had a gun to their head. In other words, you're by yourself. You don't even have the whole island. This is why what Gerald Horn wrote in this book, Confronting Black Jacobins, the United States, the Haitian Revolution, and the Origins of the Dominican Republic. One of the keys, going back to what you said at the beginning, Karen, is you got to keep these people separated. You can't let them succeed. For a brief moment, they had liberated the whole island. <laughs> Imagine if the whole, oh, hell no. The Spanish get defeated in Haiti, but they're able to hang on to the Dominican Republic. Once Haiti is isolated like that, you scare the hell out of everybody else, and the Europeans form like Voltron. They had to pay, they felt, because if they didn't, 
there would be no trade relations. Who are they going to trade with? These colonies? They can't trade with the colonies. We're going to trade with the French. Well, if you're going to trade with us, you're going to pay us. What? Pay? All right, shit. All right. They didn't pay the debt until the 20, 20th century. But if you don't pay them, you just eat that sugar. Meanwhile, as Natalie writes, they're trying to build a state. But these people in the countryside, these African people who are Haitians, they don't even own the land. And you got a tiny elite that's being nurtured by these neo by these other people who are keeping them. And, and these people are also greedy. It's a it's now, not a mess. It's well, an attempt to build something unlike the United States, a, a legitimate society where you can have some sense of equality that is not based on race, but that is grounded in an African sensibility. And to this day, that has not existed in world history. And the ones that are based on whiteness are getting ready to crumble in the face of the demographics like the United States. I mean, you talked about not, uh, Ghana and the Swiss, uh, you know, Zimbabwe, Jamaica, Barbados, Bahamas. Yes. All of that. So, so there's now trade partners. And people yes. that have autonomy. And yes. I think, you know, next week. Well, well, we hope. Somebody asked us, Karen, about um uh, about China. This is Howard French, you know, New York Times, uh, China's mm -hmm. second continent, how a million immigrants are building a new empire in, in Africa. What they're trying to pull in Ghana, what the AU is trying to do. Yes. But just like you said, the example of Haiti shows us y'all ain't walking away. And I am telling you. I'm not going. <laughs> so in other words, if you're going to beat neoliberalism, you've got to figure out a way to do it in a way like the Haitians did. By the time they figure out what you're doing, as the Eagles say, you already gone. Because when, when they brought Aristide back, when Clinton brought Aristide back, guess what they forced him to do? Take that IMF money. See, in other words, you, so they not we're not quite independent yet. And I don't know how we get there. It may take another series of revolutions. Well, we're going to keep talking about it. Somebody yeah. else got an answer. I know it. Are you ready for some questions? I am. I am. I mean, I'm sorry. We went, we went a long time today. Listen, you know, this is part of the scholarship. It's filling yeah. in. You're thorough. Oh, so no, no. This is not 120, 240 characters or less. You no. know, you are an actual educator. That's what well, you like. That's what this introducing like. topics. People, y'all get the narrative because now we can see everything I showed you. That's just a glimpse. We didn't get through the chronology and I needed to tie some other things together. Yeah, let's get to the question to answer and discussion rather, the discussion rather. Because all this stuff is just the beginning it's point. A it's not a it's not a it's not a um not Hold a point. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna add you, Edward, uh from Greenville. Let's make sure that the audio is good. Uh he's in Georgia, Gwinnett County, but Gwinnett. he's in Greenville. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, brother Edward. Hey, good. To, glad to finally meet you all. I've been watching for a long time. I got introduced to both of you all through Roland Martin, watching his show. Oh, Roland, my brother Roland. <laughs> you, you, wait, you, you, in, you in Georgia, Mississippi? You, you from? Well, I'm from Greenville, Mississippi, but I'm living in, in Georgia, right outside of Atlanta and Gwinnett County. Okay, I see you with the yeah. Southern Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Hey, um, Mississippi is one of them states we got to flip. That's they next. Absolutely. They yeah. definitely got the demographics. The demographics is there for it to be done more so there than it is in Georgia. Be, I to agree be with you, we should we should have been running Mississippi. Greenville, that's the hometown, yeah. I believe, of one of my great Jagnas, the great Barbara Curry Merle, who was Miss Tennessee State mm -hmm. back in the day, and then the vice president of student affairs at Tennessee State, but she's Greenville, Greenville sister. So okay. yeah. Okay. yeah, right there where all the casinos are. That's what it, we know for people. Right. That <laughs> Boy, are they Native Americans? Huh? Are they Native American run? No, no, no. It's predominantly just like most of the Delta. It's predominantly black. Uh, the casinos. Are, them, yeah. I think mostly white people. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because Native Americans who have control over casino market and somewhere you look at the Indian Gaming Act and stuff, some of them say, you know what, we're going to get our reparations one nickel slot at a time. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, the casino, that's where Bobby Blue Bland be performing. He used yeah. to perform. <laughs> yeah. <in there>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Blues Festival. Yeah. Yes, we had a blues sir. Festival. Yeah, Blue yeah. Bland, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Anyway, I'm sorry, man. We're going to be talking about that's my man. I pity the fool. <laughs> yeah, I watched the show last week. You yeah, did, Chris. Falls in love with you, brother. <laughs> anyway, so what's going on, Elway? <laughs> um, real quick question. So I'm um first vice president of the NAACP chapter here in Gwinnett, the Gwinnett oh, NAACPs. And I also run the, the political action committee. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that- Well, oh, the NAACP led, led by your homie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's from Mississippi. Yes, sir. Go, go ahead. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so well, I'm trying to get everybody focused on, well, this year we focus on local elections, but next year I kind of want to have the chapter um, and really want to um, probably whenever we have a state conference at some point, because we haven't had one this year yet, get kind of the other chapters focused on these state legislators, because now we're here in front of the community you know, and I think Karen spoke about this, too, so she can maybe jump in and answer, too, as well. But try to get uh, our people, black people focused on the flipping these state legislators, because now everybody's hitting us like, how do these people get elected? How can they do this? You know, were they on the ballot? And one thing people don't know here in Georgia is every two years, our state legislators, both House and Senate seats are up every single one. So every two years you have an opportunity to choose a whole new group of representatives to represent you. Yes, sir. And so yes, I'm sir. saying, do you, is that something you think all sort of local uh, civil rights chapters that's focused on sort of the political side uh, need to be focused on across the country, seeing that, you know, we're yes. facing all these wave of voter suppression laws? Because one this now I was happy to see us, you know, our work getting done because here in Gwinnett, we flipped every seat in Gwinnett County. We flipped. Help flip blue. Um, as far as the organizing, getting people to vote, all those seats were were flipped. Um, here, brother, on, it on didn't behalf, happen. State. On, on behalf of all of us, yes. On behalf of all of us who will get that little piece of stimulus check, which we want more, but we'll get it. Right. On behalf of all of us, all those children who will get food, uh, who will get health care extension. Uh, everyone who has their unemployment benefits extended, those folks who won't get evicted because of the covering for unemployment. And this is for everyone who doesn't think that it matters. And I want you, hopefully you say something about this. Edward. I want to thank you, brother, because every last person y'all turned out is yes. what allowed Warnock to get to the Senate, allow Ossoff to get to the Senate, to get it close enough to do a budget reconciliation. If y'all don't think that it matters, this is not, we're not, you don't, we're not talking about heroes. This ain't no damn movie. Ain't no good guy. John Henry Clark, you say in some stories, it ain't no good guys. But because of what y'all did, because of what y'all did, somebody is not worried about their unemployment benefit being not supplemented all the way through the fall. Right. So I want to thank you, brother. And, and please help us understand why that's important. Why we don't have you know, to, you know, we don't get to the promised land in one step. But go ahead. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's like you said, Um, it's pretty much, you know, voting is just a tool. That's you know, all. Real work is 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 what you do between you know each election, and so what we're trying to do now is at least what I'm trying to prep to do and kind of do it during the local election is not only get people out to vote, get people registered, but also get candidates trained to run. 
you know, even though we're nonpartisan, we can still get, you know, we can still have people support people policies. Um, so that's kind of what we focus on and to make sure that, you know, a lot of these sort of, uh, people that are sitting at the legislature now are not running unchallenged because that happened in one of the districts done in, um, this person ran unchallenged. And so that's why I said in Georgia, we did a great job of, like you said, with the, the federal elections, the you know president and the two Senate seats. But one of the things I was a little disappointed in, we didn't change anything from a state legislative uh, complexion. Those seats kind of stay. Some of it is that, definitely. But, but, but do you think what? How do you, do you think that's something, even in its current configuration, that can Absolutely. be overcome? Yes, okay. yes. I definitely think that's something. That. I think and I think it's something in HR1 that's going to make gerrymandering gerrymandering nonpartisan throughout all 50 states along with states getting early voting like my home state of uh, Mississippi and my wife's home state of Alabama um you know because they don't have early voting there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all saw in the south. Your wife and my mom are both Alabamians. I consider myself a second generation Alabamian. That's my yeah, she's from own Tuskegee's faculty. That's <laughs> one of my dreams, brother. But uh <laughs> help me help us help us all understand this. What is your best thinking on the filibuster? I mean, we know it's got to go. Can 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 a step toward eroding it so maybe HR uh, uh, HR1 becomes possible, the Lewis Voting Rights Act could a step be moving toward making people have to be present in the chamber to speak or do they just need to straight go nuclear and blow it up? What you think? What, what I think, I think they can take that as a first step. And if that doesn't work, then just absolutely get rid of it. Because at the end of the day, I think we see one side, you know, they don't have, it's, it's like I said at, an, at, a, at a meeting that they had me in with somebody with the Gwinnett County uh, Board of Elections here. And the lady may y'all may have heard the story. She made some comment about it. We keep allowing them to, you know, these people to vote that we'll never win an election. We'll never win an election. That was good. <laughs> so, that's right. <laughs> so I said, you know why? You know, I said the election had a high voter turnout. Republican uh, voted by mail. Republican voters voted by mail. I think it was like a record high, and the margins were close. So why is y'all first knee jerk reaction is to suppress the vote and not expand your electorate? Well, and she really didn't have a good answer. You know, that's fascinating. So do you think perhaps, and this is important. I know we, 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 we were going on, but this is so important. I hope everybody's listening because this is where the technical details come in. Lots of mm -hmm. ideological. No, no, no. Set that aside. Do you think that they may be overplaying their hand? Because unless they can get their voters re-educated not to do mail-in, not to do the things that they're trying to strip mm -hmm. out now in Atlanta and the Georgia mm -hmm. legislature, do you think they could be shooting themselves in the foot with some of these voter uh, suppression? Absolutely. That's why I think you see there's a little bit of a split. The lieutenant governor and the secretary of state right now are not on board with a lot of this legislation, whereas the rest of the state legislators in the House and Senate are. So, yeah, they, it's almost like a civil war between them and between the ideology. And even when you study states like Alabama, where my wife is from, because we still keep up with politics there, you see Governor Kay Ivey is taking a different step to a lot of the, the laws that they're doing here in Georgia. So she's not even falling in line with a lot of the stuff that they're doing. So it's definitely a split. So I think they kind of hurting themselves. Really, you know, Trump whole calling this thing election fraud suppressed a lot of their voter turnout, especially in North, North Georgia, where it's more uh, Republican voters. Yes. I think, you know, it's interesting you say that, uh, uh, Edward, because... And again, thinking about the Haitian Revolution and the struggle of the Haitian people, I think one of the things we have to do, and I think you're already doing it. I mean, this is the evidence. 
Haiti continues to struggle with what people struggle with generally. That's why I think those materialist-based critiques of Haiti and analysis of Haiti, in other words, class, class analysis is very important. The elites in any society often see their interests as different than the majority of people. What we have to do and what you've done, in fact, it seems to me, you're in Georgia there. We know Vernon Jordan at one point was director, state director in, in uh, Georgia. And his counterpart in Mississippi was, of course, uh, another of your homies, the great Mega Evers. And you think about your wife's home state of Alabama, we think about the Lowndes County Freedom Organization and what the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee did um, there. The, one of the keys is to focus on those people who are beyond the platforms, who are beyond the elected officials, who are beyond the celebrities to get out there and do that difficult work, the kind of work that John Dittmer and his book, Local People talks about. I, I, I listened to my friend Dory Ladner talk about this idea of, you know, out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. You, 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 you reach the people where they are and you find the local leadership and you work from there. Um, this is what Aristide was trying to do in Haiti. It's one read this where they took him out in 91 and again in 94. And then finally again, and, you know, sent him out of the country. When you... When you have conversation with folk who are in the little towns, when you have conversation with folks who are in the hood and you're not coming as somebody telling them something, but somebody listening and trying to understand where they are grounded, you can knit together the type of political education and awareness that will lead to using the vote as a tactic, not as a destination. To help with political education, understand that a, that a politician is an employee not a celebrity. We aren't voting on people because we like them or we, they're the first this or that. No, we've got goals and what are you going to do to help us achieve our goals? And I think that finally this voter suppression, to see, uh, yeah, the white nationalists in this country, this is the foundation of the United States of America. And I keep calling the GOP the white nationalist party because they have embraced white nationalism as their pathway to maintain political power. The white nationalist party for a long time was the Democratic Party, but the white white nationalism is a floating signifier. It can go wherever it needs to go to main to be used. And so, what you're facing in Georgia, of course, with the demographics continuing to change, what will happen now? We're in a period of transition, and I'm glad you mentioned civil war because what will happen is that there will be conflicts, class conflicts, that will take place within the groups that we oppose. And let's be very clear: we oppose those groups. We don't oppose their humanity. We don't oppose them as individuals. We oppose the ideology of oppression. And any battle that we can win that helps us be a little less oppressed is an important battle to win. They didn't run the Haitian Revolution overnight. They didn't win it in a week. As, as I said, John Thornton said, these continental Africans who had been in the military bought them time. He says one of the, one of the failures of the continental Africans who were at the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, 1791, 1792, is they organized themselves along those ethnic group lines, but that made them very small. So they were good at guerrilla warfare. They were good at hit and run, but they didn't have a concept of building a huge standing army. That's why Toussaint is so important with his knowledge and his interaction with the French. But what the Africans did was buy them time to build a standing army. Fast forward to, to what we're talking about now in terms of this political battle. What we have to do is organize people based on their local needs, on their local affiliations, on the, I guess, metaphorically, the equivalent of their national groups, their ethnic groups, their nations in those little tiny places. And as we're doing that, we have to also then, as you say, train folks who will be holding office once we get them in place 
to be able to see a picture where you can marshal all those fortunes, those for forces. So what would a Toussaint Louverture look like in electoral politics? Maybe it looks like a Cory Bush. Maybe it looks like a Raphael Warnick. Maybe it looks like on the state level and in the state legislatures, young people, old people, whoever you get who can see beyond this little town and this little town to flip this district in part by peeling off a few of those whites. Remember Toussaint, then Desaline, they are parrying back and forth with cats like de Klerk. You know, they're parrying back and forth with the Spanish. In other words, they're going to be non-blacks, non-browns. They're going to be non, they're going to be white people that you recruit into this coalition. Ossoff is an example of that. Now, does that mean ultimately you're trying to, oh, in America, we're trying to build, America's crazy, you ain't can't build, no, everybody calm down. I'm trying to make sure my grandmother's water isn't cut off. I'm trying to make sure I can secure a loan from a bank and have a job at a wage that I can pay the loan back until I can get some property. And then the next stage is to free myself from debt completely. These are, not, a revolution isn't one, one bat in one battle. By the time you get to Verteres there, uh, Verteres in the um, uh, Haitian Revolution, at the end of the Haitian Revolution, when they win that final battle where they keep plowing Africans in and the French are like, damn, they won't die every time you shoot a column of them. The next one comes out harder than before. But it took them from 1791 to 1803 to get to that final battle of the war. So thank you for the two Senate seats. Because that got people checks all over the country and it got some unemployment insurance extended and people didn't get put out. And, you know, that's not enough, but it got us more than we had before. And at the local level, finally, I think it's about the model that we saw developed with the Southern Negro Youth Conference and then the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with the Voter Education Project. John Lewis ran that at one time with all of that work that is based on the nations that exist in those little towns, in those hoods, so that. Those people can then say, while we are building economic power, while we are moving through co-ops and coming up with creative solutions at the local level, we will take a day, whether you cut out all of early, early voting or not, we will come and we will bring our own food with us. So when you show up, it's against the law to pass out water. I brought five bottles of water. This is my shit. And we will break your back like we broke it in the 30s, like we broke it in the 60s, like we broke it in the 70s, like we broke it in the 80s and 90s. And except this time we break it, it's going to stay broke because I just did a head count and you don't have enough people. You ain't even built like that no more. But I think it starts with that local organizer. Mm, yep. And uh, thank you, Edward, for your commitment. Edward, you know? yes. <laughs> Rolls up their sleeves to get busy. And there are a lot of them. You know, Georgia, you know, you got Black Voters Matter, Cliff and Latasha and of course, you got the Abrams group down there as well. And I think Mississippi is up for grabs with the Lumumbas. Uh, and there's a lot of attention right now. We are, things have changed. And uh, I see it. I see it. Uh, let's yes. bring in, and uh, great answer. Let's bring in Gardis from Chicago. Gardis, Chad, what's up, brother? Hey. Professor, Professor Hunter and Dr. Carr, it's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Carr, um, I found you uh, from a conversation I was having with a particular guy who I was talking. We were talking about John Henry Clark, and oh yeah, and we I were talking it. about we were talking about okay. So what are the great living historians that we have? And your name came up along with actually Dr. Gerald Horn, who which you mentioned. Oh, but what, was, but what was so interesting is I met you at a uh, Jacob Carruthers conference. Uh, I think in twenty. 15, I think. Or the Jake Conference, yes, at the yes. Senate. Yes, yes, yes. And you know a friend that I've known, you've known somebody, a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. She was your 
TSU classmate in Deborah Hurd. Oh, <laughs> man. Look, Deborah Hurd, and for those of you who don't know, Gordon's how Wait, where you from, Gordon? You from Chicago? Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. So would y'all meet at USC or y'all te talk together? Y'all work together? No, De De yeah, Deborah used to work with my wife uh, 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 in a uh, in a tutoring center uh, yes. in Chicago. Yes, yes, so, yeah. That. that so she I, she actually knew her first, and then I met her, and then Brother, we started talking, and our interest was. <laughs> hey man, you know what's funny, man? And it's so funny you say that, Gardis. And no, we we had this other conversation. We conversation is is, is we talking. First of all, the Jacob Carruthers Conference, for y'all don't know, every February around his birthday, the Center for Inner City Studies, as you know, as we know, as we saw each other, has the Jacob Carruthers Conference, the uh, Comedic Institute, uh, you know, Yvonne Jones, I, uh, um, 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 all, of, all the people in, in the uh, Comedic Institute, I think, of course, of Ife Carruthers, uh, Jacob Carruthers' widow, um, very important. Um, where we talk about these ideas. And so, you know, a lot, a lot of other stuff. But Deb, man, that's funny. I tell Nick all the time, and you know, I could watch, uh, I could watch Drumline uh, consecutively just on loop. Why? Because those minutes in the band room, Deborah Heard was one of the first, and by what one of the first, I mean one of like the first three or four people I met when I was eighteen years old at Tennessee State. She played clarinet coming out of Chattanooga, and I was a baritone horn player. I like trumpet, but when I seen them Negroes blowing them trumpets, and I played the trumpet, I still got a trumpet in there, but I switched to baritone. I know I couldn't hit them high register notes and sustain them that way. Me and Deb go all the way. We go all the way back. That's my girl. And the only thing I say about her, and this is for everybody to understand, the people we see on platforms, you say TV or they publishing books to these white book publishing companies, hey, that's great. Do everything. But when you ask us like Deborah Heard, who's finishing up at the University of Chicago. She's a professor. Deborah Hurd is an expert uh, in Egyptian language, and she focuses particularly on material culture, uh, archaeology, anthropology, material anthropology. She focuses on Nubia, so the Sudan. Deborah Hurd is equipped and has done, has been on site for digs. So we got black people who are trained in this stuff. In fact, she's part of a coalition, a group, I think, of uh, Justin Dunavit, uh, my former students, a brilliant. He does this, the Black Folks Dive, a very important brother, young brother, Justin, who's down at Vanderbilt right now. And my brother, who is also very, he and Deb are very close as well, Mario Beatty, uh, the, the Egyptian language teacher. They have, put, they have come together with a few other people, um, Solange, Ashby, and some others, who's also a very important person dealing with black woman, dealing with uh, the Sudan. Dealing with Nubia, basically, Ethiopia. I mean, they put together something called the William Leo Hansberry Society, where they are pulling together these black folk who do ancient studies, and they are some of the most brilliant. And of course, you know, Chicago, and you know, the Hansberry name, very famous because you know, Raising the Sun is based there. But William Leo Hansberry's brother's daughter was Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote A Raising in the Sun. And they challenged, I think it was Hansberry versus Lee. I'd have to go back and look at my case books. Who um, that was the one of the housing ordinances they. They broke the restrictive covenant there in Chicago. But all of that's the Chicago story. And when you say Deborah Heard, man, that's my, you know, me and Deb ride. We ride from back in the day. So anyway, yeah, man, I ain't mean to go through all that. Gardens, what you doing in, in the city, though, man? What, what kind of work do you do, brother? Okay, well, uh, also one more thing. Deborah gave my 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 youngest daughter her her middle name Imani. So that's that's something Did special. To us. <laughs> yes. <Did she? laughs> oh, was she still was she still in the womb or? 
Oh yeah, when she was still in the womb, because her and my wife was working at the same place during that time, and she gave she gave my wife the middle name. Yeah, I so we 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 have a special we have a special <laughs> place in our heart for for Deborah. She oh, is our girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? This is the as you know, one of the most beautiful spirits you would never know. <laughs> as, as as notorious B.I.G. say, bad boys, bad girls too. Removing silence and violence, Deb is one of them people. So anyway, I know, can, Professor, I'm sorry, we got into other thing. Uh, <laughs> what you what you what you thinking about, brother? Well, all right. So I am I am currently an amateur historian on 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 Haitian history, and I love that you oh. you, know, you you and Deborah brought this up. You 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 pointed out one book about uh uh black the uh, confronting black Jacobins by Gerald Horn. I remember I read that book as soon as yes. it was published. Yes, you know one of the most important things about uh about books is always the footnotes. I no always question. look at the footnotes. And I started looking at some of his footnotes, and he had some footnotes from particular historians during that time, yes. particularly Thomas Madou, uh, uh, Bayer Brun uh, Ardoon. And I, I, I went to research and, and tried to check it out, and I found some documents uh, about the history of Haiti from Thomas Madou, but oh. they were in French. They were in French. But with the, with, with, with the magic of modern technology, you're, I'm able to translate that. So I was actually going through those documents. What did you and it, well, I, uh, Thomas Madeau has has like five volumes of Haitian history. They're all in French. That's and what it deal- is. That's yes. what it stuff really is. Is in the French. No question. Exactly. <laughs> so it basically deals with it. It basically deals with from 1791 all the way up to like 1870. And Whoa. this is where this is where this is where Gerald Horn, you know, uh, yes. his book covers all of that stuff. That's right. And I always thought that that was probably the most important reason why Haiti is the way it is now. No question. You know, and we understand the revolution and everything, but I always was interested in what was the governments like after the revolution. And it was it and it was it was basically a lot of things going on and and, and you and Professor Hunt, uh Professor Hunter talked about the indemnity that uh that Frank uh that the Haitians had to pay to the French. And I read about that in that document because the, the president at that time was uh, Jean-Pierre Boyer. Boyer, who, yeah. Who paid that indemnity because Charles X, uh, they had just got written, uh, they had just got rid of Napoleon Bonaparte and Charles right. X was there. Right. But he also written in his book that there were warships that were about to, that were about to attack Haiti. Oh, no he got He got scared no and question. decided we're going to pay the indemnity. No question. But, yeah, but what I, Boyer, as you know, Boyer had to, had to basically reunite the country because Petion was in the south, right? And uh, Christophe was in the north. And once Christophe is dead, somebody got to bring them together. Yeah, so he conquered, yeah, so he conquered the Dominican Republic side. And he and Toussaint were the only leaders who had the whole island of Hispaniola to Thank themselves. You. Now, here was the thing. So I was trying to look for some Black Haitian historians that were a little bit closer. And I, I couldn't find many, but I did find one called Horace Paulus Sanit. He wrote he wrote something called the historical essay on the 1843 revolution. It that's in French as well. Ah. And he wrote it he wrote it cuz he was living during the time of the uh of the uh uh of the military occupation the the marine occupation of of, of Haiti in like yes. it was it was 1934 because yeah. he wanted to get a more understanding of how this history ties into what was going on during that time. Yes. And so what he did was he pinpointed that in that 1843 revolution, you were talking about the rural people. They revolted against uh, 
against President Boyer because uh, Boyer was the longest serving president of Haiti still right. to this day, That's 22 right. years. That's right. And so what they did was uh, what they did, along with a lot of other countries, when we're talking about the French, we're talking about U.S., we're talking about Britain. They all took advantage of the divides that that the Haitian society was going through in regards to colorism, in regards yeah. to class, in regards to how foreign affairs had to had to be handled. Yes. And then during that time, too, the Spanish was was basically feeding a lot of a lot of, of, of weaponry and a lot of stuff to the Dominican Republic. Yes. And then in the year after that, you had you had the, uh, the the Dominican War of Independence, which unfortunately the Haitians lost because yeah. their governments were so in disarray. Yes. And then they kept then then they got rid of Boyer. But yeah. then after Boyer, a lot of the leadership had turned over like one or two years. Some of them didn't even last, you know, you know, for for, for more than a year. It's so unbelievable, that, man. Yeah. It's just so like Sanin, one after the, yes, yes. Yeah. So Sanin basically in in this essay was talking about how that was an important event. Uh uh and then that was a that was a watershed moment on why Haiti is the way it is back then and why it is now because they never resolved those 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 conflicts that they had even That's though right. they gotten together for you know the revolution and beat beat France but they no. never resolved those conflicts so i want to ask you why why is the focus on the the the, the 70 years after the revolution yeah. Why is that not important? Why is Gerald Horn the the, the only book I can find yes. that goes into detail with all of that history of of why these Haitian governments had failed? Well, I mean, I think you've already laid it out, Cardis. I think um, ultimately the villain of the piece, as we know, are those are two are, it's two pronged. Well, it's actually one pronged. The social structure, the external. Uh, interference, the meddlers. We shouldn't have been on the island in the first place. We came during enslavement, obviously. And that's why Jacob Carruthers names his book, The Irritated Genie. He says, in fact, he ends the book with Dessaline's ascension. And he uses it in some ways as a cautionary tale. He says, Jacob Carruthers used to always say this, as you, you probably know, do not snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Because the two prongs, I won't say two prongs, I keep saying two prongs, but the external forces are able to do what they do in terms of disruption because of the internal dissent. That class question, uh, that, that, that question, as you say, that leads to uh, after the reunification of Haiti and the long Boyer, ten, Boyer tendency, still Boyer does what, I mean, Petion does, what, uh, what Christophe does what Desalines does, what Toussaint does, which is what? You still, you haven't addressed the needs of the overwhelming majority of the Haitian people, the ones who fought and did most of the dying and winning in the revolution. This is the rural group. And that's why Duvalier's, uh, I'm sorry, that's why um, Aristide's presidency was so full of hope at the beginning, but they immediately have to move against him. Those rural people, which is one of the points that Jean Fouchard is making in the Haitian Maroons, and that C.L.R. James, by the way, continues to make not only in Black Jacobins, but in all his work, because he's drawing contemporary parallels. That that inability to address the needs of and bring into and widen the scope of governance to include the least of these lies at the heart of the weakness of the attempt to build these societies 
that are really, that remain un, unexecuted, not unimagined, because some of the best writing, and as you know, I mean, again, I'm thinking about Antonin Furman. I mean, some of the best writing is from some of these Haitian elites, but at the same time, you're not addressing the material conditions that these people that you're writing about and talking about are suffering under. So I think ultimately the period you're talking about, which coincides, of course, with the uh, acceleration of America building its empire of color, culminating in terms of Haiti, as you say, in the invasion of 1915. And I think now about Rayford Logan, for example, who wrote about that, um, you know, but I would be very interested in reading the piece that you suggested, man, you, you put your email in the chat because we need to, I need to, we need, I need to read that guard because, you know, that's again what one of the things that Natalie Pierre is writing about. And I think that there are a lot of people, in fact, this decolonial history that um, Jean Cashmere is writing about is very interesting because he's raising a lot of those issues as well. You know, you're, you're going to have that internal tension in Haiti is like as anywhere else as long as you're not addressing the conditions of the majority of the people. And I'm not saying the masses as if there's this one political consciousness among those folk. You know, I think about Amiri Baraka, I think about John Jackson who lived there in Chicago, his last days in Chicago. In fact, I remember one time Jake Perez told me a story. He said uh, uh, Kwame Ture was on a panel with John Jackson and, and Brother Kwame, our, our brother, used to, he kept saying, the masses of the people, we got to organize the masses of the people, the masses of the people. He said John Jackson pretended to go to sleep and then he came to him, Professor Jackson, what's your response? He looked up and said, the masses is asses. <laughs> In other words, now that's that's an overly harsh, but, but, but the idea that just because somebody is deprived materially, that they have some kind of political consciousness that you can tap to, no, they're no different than anybody else. That's the hard kind of organizational work that we just heard a minute ago. And so guards, I think, that period finally in Haitian history from the 1840s through the beginning of the 19th century, I think reveals, not even reveals, it reminds us that building a society isn't just about what you oppose. Because it seems to me that's when you see the Haitians make the most progress, whether it be opposition to the U.S. occupation, this kind of thing. Building a society requires you to do the hard work of person to person, step by step, inch by inch, organizing, building, and investing in people's common humanity, which is why I think Aristide's early days, before he was a politician who had to be coaxed into running, you know, for the presidency, I think that's where you see, I, I hesitate to say for the first time, because anytime you say for the first time, somebody reveals that, no, this isn't the first time, but maybe to that scale in terms of Haiti, the first time there is something being grounded in this is what we are for in addition to what we are against. But again, I, I really want to read. I really want to read. Oh, there it is right there. Thank you, brother. Because I want to I want to read. Did you you, you translated it yourself? Uh, Garden? I'm, I'm, I'm almost done translating it because it's like it's a lot of pages. And so, you know, when you when you getting when you're getting text from a PDF. And, you know, these PDFs are like pictures and, you know, you got to format them a certain way in order to translate them. Uh, I'm I'm almost done, but I will I will send you the French. I will French send you the French one, and okay. I'll send you the ones I have from English right now. Okay, because I can I can always dig in my uh dig in my uh in my dictionary here, so it's not in Creole. I mean, well, it wouldn't be in Creole because the French because the Haitian elite not gonna be caught dead. <laughs> but 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 coming coming from Chicago, where of course we know uh 
the brother arriving at the mouth of the Chicago River in 1779, the great Jean-Baptiste du Sable, <laughs> Haitian. And, and, and one, one more thing, can I say this? I went to Haiti in 2017. Oh, wow, yes. I, I visited Haiti in 2017. And when you're on the ground level in a country where you know you hear about all this stuff and you start to see all of the effects of what the Clinton administration has done to this country. Oh boy. Do you know that 90% of Haitian rice is imported? This is a country that's supposed to grow rice. Come on, and brother. That, and thank you, and thank you, Clinton administration, oh, yeah. for making that deal of importing rice. Do you know what the largest export uh, in Haiti is? Is t-shirts. And they import the cotton. Yes. In other words, they grow the cotton on the island. I heard the, the South Koreans are down there. Yeah, and shout out to Bill Clinton. All y'all love Bill Clinton? Understand when he was in office, he put that gangster thing in. And as soon as he got out, they made him the UN special envoy. I think that was in 1995. And then he comes back with the Clinton Global Initiative. And what are they doing? Privatizing natural resources, exorbitant external debt, so-called free trade agreements that are that are asymmetrical, outsourcing labor and open markets for capital. So what you just said, Burtis, is so important. That's your friend, Bill Clinton. That's your friend, Bill Clinton, Clinton Global Initiative. I appreciate you. Thank, thank you, Gardis. And that's why we have to have these conversations. Yes. So we know. So we know. Yes. Uh, let me thank everybody that asked the question. Let me thank everybody in the chat today. Give us the like button for the YouTube thing because we're going to keep doing this live on in class, live on Saturdays and YouTube. But then head over to narrative. Um, I was just getting a message from Uraeus. Not every video is annotated yet because that takes work. There's seven hours of hard labor to annotate each and every video. And there's only a handful of people Shout doing it. Oh my God. Yeah, we'll expand it. But right yeah. now, there there's seven amazing um, episodes in there. And every single episode that we've done are also in narrative without commercials. So those of you complaining about the commercials, we're keeping them here on YouTube. So just, you know, skip them. But if you want to yeah. interrupt it, head over to narrative.com. The bibliography has been, has been expanded. And next week, we're adding some more things. We're still in beta for the next couple of weeks. So this is the time to sign up because uh, the price will change in April. Oh, yeah, please, please. Uh, yeah, please, please, please do that because we are... I'm telling you, look, Professor Hunter, again, not only thank you, but um, my energy has been shifting all year. And here we are just passing the anniversary of this thing we went, but it has really accelerated over the last couple of months and even in the last uh, couple of weeks. So that what we're doing now on Saturdays, what people that what everyone's participating in, please understand that we are taking quantum leaps. So we're going to take another quantum leap very shortly. This is the center of it. So if you're sitting there thinking, wow, tuition, imagine what you would pay in tuition. Now imagine a small investment and for something that ultimately will be superior to what you would get in those spaces. And that's just the beginning because it involves you. Every story that we've had today brought up, when you heard Edward, when you heard Gardis, everyone listening has a story. That's why you're genius, Professor uh, Hunter, when you say narrative, we all have stories. The books are points of entry and we need them. But every one of these books is drawn from other people's stories. Right. And everybody has a story. So when we put our stories together, we will literally change the world. Maybe next week. Yeah, we can talk about the end. I mean, there's a Haiti in North Carolina. 
Let's talk about it. You know what I'm saying? There's a there, there's a reason those people named that neighborhood Durham, Haiti. There's another reason why Margaret Burroughs, the sister who started the oldest black museum in the country in Chicago, she and Charlie Burroughs is a reason they named it the DuSable Museum because that Haitian founded the city of Chicago. <laughs> so yeah, we all yeah, talk about yeah. Anyway. Uh, let me yeah. thank uh, Kareem and Donica all the time. Thank you, Donica. Appreciate y'all, you race and Carl. We'll see everyone next week. Um, be safe, wear a mask, um, and love yourselves.